I was talking to somebody a couple of days ago and they're saying um, they were super excited for us to be doing the Tarantino series because they be follow our podcast, which is nice. Um, you got a fan? Yeah, there's a fan out there, like the fan that's representing um, the entire fan base. And he was saying that Reservoir Dogs, um, he was excited that we were going to do Reservoir Dogs first because Tarantino does have a couple of films before Reservoir Dogs, but they're kind of like short films, so they're not like his Hollywood debut. Hence why we do that. No. <laughs> I, th- I, think it's, I think it's good that we start with Reservoir Dogs because it's the first film that he directed as kind of a Hollywood film, I suppose. But anyway, they were saying that... Um, uh, he was saying that uh, Reservoir Dogs is the best Tarantino film. See, it's actually interesting. I shared that opinion, and then I finished watching this movie. Like you're like now, twenty minutes ago. No, I don't say. I wouldn't say I don't like it now. Um, I just I want to wait until I see Pulp Fiction again. Mm, I was very much a massive Reservoir Dogs guy, and I think it's because um, it did a lot of things to me for like the first time mm. i'm not sure I'm, I'm making that sound weirder than it is but like, i i actually think it's it's to do with this whole tarantino was like out of the gates really fast with uh being an awesome filmmaker with something like reservoir dogs being his first film right i think yeah. it's i think a lot of it's to do with that because um i i like this movie i i just don't think it's anywhere near his best Whoa, really? Like, yeah. For me, it's like one or two. Like it, It's there. It's there or thereabouts. It could be number three for me. Oh, that's good. That's really good. Yeah. How, how many has he made? Ten. Three's not a bad spot. Three's not a bad spot. Like, for me, it's like, yeah, one or two. Like, it, between this and Pulp Fiction. <laughs> and I don't... Like, up until two hours ago, I would have said Reservoir Dogs any day of the week. Right. And I'm still probably... I think I remember you saying that. that Reservoir Dogs was amazing before we even started yeah. to rewatch them so we can review them for the podcast. That's what's happening for me as well. This is the one I was most excited to watch again, and I've done it, and so now it's just all downhill from, from here. <laughs> 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 all right, so welcome to the Logical Podcast, everybody. If, you, if this is your first time here, welcome. If it's your returning listener... Thank you for coming back. You're the fan. You are the fan, alongside my friend who... Well, I can't say my friend. He's just someone who mentioned <laughs> that he wants to... Um, not wants to be friends, but like uh, there is a feeling of this person wanting to connect a lot on social media, which is nice. It's really nice. We have a cool. fan that represents the fan base. So uh, welcome back to the listeners. And um, this is... Uh, Wait, I'm, shout out their names. You want to shout out their names? They'll get a kick out of that, right? <laughs> Oh, we're no gonna, gonna make it work for it. Okay, shout out, shout out to Chris. I can't remember your um, uh, Instagram handle, but uh, his name's Chris. So shout out to him. Um, yes. First things first, I'm gonna. Uh, I don't know if you heard that, but crack open a beer. This is drunken podcasting. Oh, it's gonna get wild. It was about to spill everywhere. Oh no! I think it. What is it? What are you drinking today? Well, I almost Forever. spilt it on my keyboard. <coughs> do you have a nice keyboard or do you like have one you don't really care about? I mean, I have a good keyboard, you know. It's a keyboard that I brought for the primary purposes of gaming. Yeah, I mean, like, not the you, primary like, purposes, but... In it? Did you put your caps in it? Like, did you... Is it one of those? <laughs> I, I have had a bit of food in it, yeah, for sure. No, I'm talking about like, um, you know, people like they buy, they buy switches for their keyboard, like a mechanic. Oh, keyboard. sorry. <laughs> I thought you said, I thought you did you throw food and caps and it like, 
totally like no, no, no. misread. Well, the fact that you put it implies to me that you probably haven't built this one up because I got like friends who are like. No, really I, I've got caps on it. Yeah, yeah, I've got certain like um, like uh, grip caps on some of the keys. Oh, okay. Um, for like the W A S D keys, F R Q E. Those are the main keys that I use for FPS gaming. Oh, you put caps on the keys? Okay, I think we're talking about two different things, but that's still interesting. Not, not caps on the keys. These are like grip caps. Oh, so that your fingers don't slip off. Yeah, which is like very rare. It's just one of those comfortability things, really. Yeah. Um, but but the keys the keys that I have, if if this is of any interest, anybody listening or even yourself, Tony, but the keys <laughs> I have is red keys. I don't like know if that means... Red. It only means something to people that, that do gaming. You're probably talking about switches, the red switches, Yeah, red switches, right? yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, okay, no, I'm, I'm on my way around a keyboard. Okay. okay. I don't care a huge amount. Like, my friend tried to get me into it for a while, and so I bought a a Keychron and, like, you know, switched out the, I don't know, the switches for something else and then changed the caps and blah, blah, blah. I mean, and it's, like, only, it's only real, real use for people who are gaming. I don't even know if it is, man. Like, i got to be honest. Like, I, Well, you know, like a... IT worker out there that's like really into the different types of switches for like the Excel yeah, spreadsheets. Yeah, yeah. I think it's like sort of uh, <laughs> typing, like how it feels to type. Oh, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I guess that makes sense that way. Sure. Yeah, because like I, I personally find that I have a much easier time typing on a laptop keyboard or gaming on a laptop keyboard. Because they're softer that or something? It just, it, you don't need as much effort or time to get the button down, right? So I do much more actions if I'm playing on a laptop mm. keyboard. So yeah, interesting. Um, but what's more interesting? <laughs> what's more interesting is my beer. I'm having a double Maybe. IPA. Double IPA. What makes it double? More Indian or more pale? <laughs> Sounds like we're about to just get cancelled for <laughs> <laughs> more Indian or more pale. Um, oh yeah, damn. Uh, I, I don't actually know what it's. Um, to be honest, I don't really, really know the definition of like a double IPA. The only thing I know about it or what, what it's what it is compared to a normal IPA. So a double IPA is generally much more hoppier and more stronger in ABV. So the ABV for this is eight point two percent. Ooh, that's high. For those who don't know what ABV is, jeez, uneducated, but um, it's alcohol um, percentage in a beverage. Uh, so yeah, it is pretty high. Um, you know, some Christoph do like legit drunk or something. Do like a beer review podcast. Who? You and Christoph. Oh yeah, Christoph's like a big crap beer drinker, right? Massive beer guy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Shout out to Christoph. Not the al- not the vodka, but he must be so gutted that he got named Christoph and not like Indian Pale Ale. <laughs> I think well, I was thinking what Heineken would be. No, that'd be a name, but he wouldn't be proud of that name. He'd be proud of like. Moondog. Moondog. <laughs> you just thought of the first craft beer company. <laughs> yeah. Is Moondog, that's a Melbourne company, right? Ah, uh, man, I don't even know. I think I think it's a Melbourne. I don't know. We're probably going to get slaughtered in the comments by Christoph himself. Um, nonetheless, you know, great to be drinking this double IPA. Great to be having you back on the podcast. We're doing the Legacy Series, continuing on from we finished all how many movies? <laughs> Nine movies? I can't remember. Oh, 12. 12 Christopher Nolan films. I remember 12. Damn. Wait, was it 12? I totally forgot. I'm having a mind blank. That's cool. Okay, anyway, well, we've finished all 
of Christopher Nolan's films that he directed. Um, the last one we done on the podcast, which is not in chronological order, in very much uh, Nolan style, non-linear. <laughs> that was, oh yeah, that was unintentional that was actually. <laughs> oh yeah, it was on purpose. It was totally planned because yeah. we that's the closest we can get to good storytelling. No, but like the last one we did was Tenet, and all the other. Um, Christopher Nolan movies have been reviewed and recapped by myself and Nath for most of it. Um, we did have JC jump on for Oppenheimer, um, which was the second to last film, whereas technically it should have been the last film that we reviewed for the Legacy series. Hashtag Legacy series. So we're starting off the new set of um, Legacy series with uh, uh, some would consider him to be one of the greatest directors of his generation, or our generation, I should say. Um, for someone like myself, personally, I think he's a very entertaining director, and I'm excited to review and recap all his films. Wait, is Tarantino and Nolan like similar generation or no? Um, that's a good, weird, right? That's the like, good question. Like in terms of them being directors, I think they operated around the same time. However, I think Tarantino probably has about five or so, five or six years on Christopher Nolan when it comes to directing per se. I don't think they're hey, the same age. I, this movie's like 92. This movie's and 92. Like, and, be like 08 or something. And which one? What was like, when, when did Memento come out? Well, he, he started with The Following. The Following was a film that came out in 95. Oh, what, for real? Yeah. Oh, okay. Mm. Was that a good movie? What did you give it? Yeah, I mean, it's good. We didn't review it. We, we actually started from Memento, which came out in 1989. So no, 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 apparently it's two thousand according to Google. Oh, two thousand. Okay, yeah, two thousand. So that's actually older than I thought. Yeah. <sighs> Sorry. But yeah, I did find it weird to say obvious generation because directing is such a lifetime kind of thing. It is a lifetime kind of thing, and and I, I do think you know directors like Tarantino and Chris Nolan they have in some ways like you know they, they've sort of surpassed like the ten year mark, and and that's where I would sort of start to consider. Um, of their generation or whatever. Um, as far as their ages, um, I'm not sure if they are of similar age. Um, I have no idea. You could probably I'll do some. Tarantino is older. He looks older. <laughs> it's probably all the smoking he's done in his movies. Um, <laughs> but yeah, they, they sort of span across a similar timeline. You know, from the 90s, like uh, mid to late 90s, all the way up to now, I guess. Yeah, um, I think. Tarantino's still going. He's not retired yet, is he? Well, he said he only wanted to do nine films, but he's actually done ten films. So he said he was going to finish with uh, Django Unchanged, and then oh. um, he brought out Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and he said he's done. He's he only wants he only wanted to direct ten films. So originally he said nine, and he, and yeah. then he went to ten, and he said he's done. So apparently, yeah, I'll retire for him. Apparently, <laughs> he, he's he's done dusted. I don't know what the significance is of him wanting to cap the amount of films that he does. Um, maybe it's got to do with uh, his childhood filming passion or something, or him going to film school or something like that. I don't know. No, I reckon it's him just wanting to live his life, man, trying to do the dream. Could be Get that rich, too. Do nothing. Yeah, yeah. Well, he he's still he's still involved in the industry. He produces. He writes. Um, but he's not directing films. No. Oh, okay. He's actually written and and produced more films than he has directed. Hopefully he's striking right now. Wouldn't have a clue. Wouldn't have a clue. Yeah, so um, we're starting this Legacy series, Quintus Tarantino. The first film that we're reviewing today is Reservoir Dogs, a film that was released in 1992, 23rd of October. Um, with a very small budget of $1.2 million and had a 
almost triple the amount uh, that it made in box office intake with $2.8 million. With a runtime of one hour and 45 minutes, this ranks as one of his highest scoring uh, films, according to Rotten Tomatoes, with uh, 90% from the critic rating and 94% from the audience rating. Now, the general consensus here from Rotten Tomatoes is that it's a, quote, uh, I don't even, that's not a quote. (laughs) Thrumming? Thrumming? I don't, thrumming. I don't know what thrumming is. What's thrumming? I reckon there's like a lot of it, right? Oh, like cool. like heaps. Uh, I feel like thrumming is like you know like a like a beat or something like you know like a, you know it's like a lot of it and it's like bouncing or something. Is that because yeah, you thought like, of drumming? Yeah, kind of. <laughs> to make a continuous rhythmic humming sound, it uh, does have drum-like properties. Okay, there we go. You are as smart as what they say. Um, <laughs> thrumming with They're intelligence. <laughs> thrumming with intelligence and energy. Reservoir, Reservoir Dogs opens Quentin Tarantino's filmmaking career with hard-hitting style. I'd agree with that. I, I would actually agree with that. Yeah, it's okay. Fair bit of style. I, I think it's kind of funny, right? I, I looked at a couple of the old reviews for Reservoir Dogs before doing this. and Written reviews or video reviews? Uh, written. I can't. I don't have a lot of time for video. I mean, I shouldn't say that because it's a podcast. Isn't the same everyone. amount of time. <laughs> ah, or you can read way faster than a person can talk. Oh yeah, yeah, for sure. But um, yeah, like everyone was talking about the style. I don't think the. St- I mean, the style was good, but like, I, I didn't think that was like the the uh, most critical part of this film. I, I'm surprised that everyone talks about it. Mm. Anyway. Yeah, this is yeah. I I I, th- I think they're referring to the Tarantino style. Yeah, um, I guess it's the first time they would have seen it, right? Yeah, um, and and I'm pretty sure the first time they would have seen it, they wouldn't have been like, oh yeah, this is Tarantino style because they have nothing to compare it to. But yeah, um, I guess it's a new style of film. Yeah, um, um, and it's yeah. it's definitely probably one of the first of its kind to have this kind of Hollywood impact because films like this very much has this amateur film technique to it, you know, like like somebody straight out of film school. Um, and I think the reason, and this is something I want to dive into in the recap, I think the reason why people rate it so high is because he managed to do an amateur-style film, just purely from a technical standpoint. Um, not a lot of, like, uh, crazy camera work, not a lot of... Um, uh, sophisticated dolly shots or anything like that, or um, even the editing. The editing is not even very polished, in my opinion. But I think the reason why it has so much impact is because of what he does with the storytelling and the characters, which I think is the best part of the entire film. Um, right, okay. Yep. So, um, yeah, so, so this movie is basically about a group of thieves assemble to pull off the perfect diamond heist. It turns into a bloody ambush when one of them, when one of the men turns out to be a police off, uh, police informer. Wait, for somebody who's not, for somebody who's listening to the podcast right now, um, and we haven't seen spoiler alert or anything, is that a spoiler? Massive. It is a spoiler, right? Okay. <laughs> Goddamn. Sorry. Look, look, um, I feel like there's a statute here, right? Like, like it's 1992. <laughs> yeah, what true, 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 true. But it is a spoiler, right? Like, I mean, it's, I'm surprised yeah, that sure. this is in the synopsis, like, uh, for the film. Like, yeah, this is on, I mean, I, this is on IMDb. IMDb. Yeah. I think they're aware of the, the statute as well, right? Like, <laughs> But that's almost like giving away the um, the reveal at the end of the Saw movie or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That is true. Mm. 
Okay, bad assumptions. Anyway, you want to you keep going with it? <laughs> yeah, I'll, wanna... I'll keep going with it. <laughs> As the group begins to question uh, each other's guilt, the heightening tensions threaten to explode the situation before the police step in. I mean, that is a synopsis. Like, I don't know if that's... Like, I wouldn't sell it the movie this way. Yeah, yeah. What would you say the synopsis would be? Like, very short without spoilers. Um, a heist goes wrong, and people were left trying to figure it out. Boom. Cool, 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 go. I like it. Um, yeah, I'd probably say the same thing. (laughs) Yeah, like... Like, six criminals, um, are confined in a small space, um... With an effort to run away from, uh, no, that's too long. Really <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, like when a heist, when a when a heist job goes wrong, six criminals are confined to a small space, in efforts to um, a battle of like wit and survival. <laughs> I can imagine this being in the trailer. Actually, like, you know those old nineteen nineties trailers, like this summer. Mm-hmm. Six criminals are in a room. Yeah, <laughs> that kind of stuff. Pretty much, yeah. Um, so this is directed and written by Quentin Tarantino and his long, long time writing partner John. Oh, John, <laughs> Roger Avery. He's pretty much written every single film. Um, don't quote me on that. I'm pretty sure that's kind of true because I've been doing a little bit of research on Tarantino's films. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, we're just going to go through the cast list real quick here. We've got Harvey Cartel, who plays Mr. White, Tim Roth, a.k.a. Incredible Hulk. Oh, sorry, not Incredible Hulk. <laughs> Abomination, which is the villain in Incredible Hulk. Um, oh. Yeah, because I was like, oh, he's in this movie. He plays, hey, who is he? He plays the Abomination in um, The Incredible Hulk oh. with Edward Norton as the Hulk. Right, okay. Oh, that one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. So he's playing um, Mr. Orange. We've got Michael Mads. Madsen playing Mr. Blonde, Chris Penn playing Nice Guy Eddie, uh, Steve Buscemi playing Mr. Pink, Lawrence Tierney playing Joe Carbo. Carbo? Cabot? I think it's Cabot. Do we ever learn his last name? I thought we just know him as Joe. I think they say Cabot. Yeah, they do say Joe Cabot. The, 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 the cops is at the end. Oh, okay. Near the end. Okay. Um, Randy Brooks plays Holiday. Holiday, Holiday. I actually don't even know who that is. Holiday, <laughs> I don't know who that um, is. Kirk Bolt plays Marvin Nash. Edward uh, Bunker plays Mr. Blue as Eddie Bunker. Um, Quentin Tarantino plays Mr. Brown. You know what's interesting about this movie, right? Like that he stars think... himself in it. <laughs> nah, I mean that's, he actually does a good job of that. But like, does, I find it's hard to know which people got famous off this film versus which people were already famous. Like, I'm sure Harvey Keitel was already famous. He was already right? famous. Yeah. Like, Harvey Keitel is, like, he's, like, in his 80s now. Like, this guy's been in films since, like, World War One. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, like, like, he's always been famous, you know? He's been in, like, gangster films and stuff in the past. Um, he does a good job with this one. He does a good job. I think he's actually my favorite character in the, in the movie. That checks out. I think he's the main character. Oh, like, I don't know. I don't know. Really? I would say... Okay, I'd say that Mr. Orange is actually the main character. I don't know. I mean, they're all main characters, and they all like play the play a pivotal role towards moving the story forward and being um, the central focus of the story. Um, maybe with the exception of Joe Carbo and uh, Mr. Nice, uh, sorry, Nice Guy Eddie. Um, I think all of them. Okay, there's actually <laughs> there's three characters that I think are the, the most important characters in this film. I have a feeling we're going to say the same thing, but yeah. Okay, so I'll name one, and then you name the second one. Oh wait, wait. no, no, I'll, I'll just name all three, yeah. and then you say yes or no. Okay, so yeah. 
I think Mr. White is one of them. Yeah. Mr. Orange. Yeah. And Mr. Blonde. Blonde? Yeah. After that, I was going to go for... I have amazing Blonde. explanations, so... Blonde <laughs> is, like, if anything, the antagonist, in a way, right? Antagonist. Oh, not officially, not officially. Mm. Okay, there, there, okay, it's hard to say that, but okay, what's your, what's your reasoning? Uh, I want to get into the reasoning during the recap, actually. I'm really actually getting excited talking about this film, and, and I think I'm going to like the movie more by the end of the recap oh. than I actually initially like the film. It's going to be a reverse Probably, because it's the characters that kind of make me excited now that I think about it. <laughs> yeah, great. great characters, great script. Yeah. Um, okay, so first impressions. Um, first impressions and uh, some highlights, lowlights, and performances. You take it away. On oh, me, I go first? Yeah. Okay. Uh, highlights for me. The script, fantastic. It's a great script. This is the first... When I was talking about in the past a little bit, um, like, this movie did a couple of things for me, like, for the first time. Um, the main thing is that, like, I think it was one of those ones where the dialogue felt normal. Um, I don't know what it is. Like, it's, it's like Seinfeld, but in a movie. Like, you know how, like, just, just randomly talking about random crap all the time? It really draws me in. Because, you know, you watch, like, a heist film. They're always talking about the heist. Every, and, like, I sort of get it, too. Like, you, we always talk about, like, oh, this is tight storytelling. Oh, the, you know, not a second wasted. And in doing so, you kind of get into a trap where you're always, like, making sure that every line of dialogue or every action moves the plot along in some way and like this movie kind of made me realize that that's one not necessary and two sometimes not ideal because like you watch like romantic comedy movies where people should be talking about normal stuff right they're not secret agents they're not like saving the world and they're often not talking about normal stuff and so this is the movie where that happened and i really love that about it um i think like these sort of deeply i'm not gonna say deeply personal but deeply contained stories are always like really fun like it's one room more often than not um i like the drip feed of sort of exposition like we made fun of tenant in the last thing where it's just you're just getting like ten like exposition just dropped on you at all times this one you have little flashbacks and these flashbacks give you enough information and it's sort of like it's sort of opening your eyes slowly now if i want to talk about like low lights i really like this movie so it's hard i think some of the flashbacks they don't give you a lot. Like, there are some things you learn about the characters which which I don't think are necessary. But then at the same time, like, when you look at Mr. Blonde's flashback, it's really quite... Um, it raises the tension for you as the viewer because there's a point in the third act, maybe I don't go into it, but then when someone tries to start to discredit Mr. Blonde and you know how this person feels about him, it's like, you know, as the viewer, you're like, oh, shit, what's he doing? What's he doing? Um, but yeah, low lights. I don't know. Maybe I'm just gonna think about it as the movie goes on. And yeah, I can probably help you out with the low lights. Don't worry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What do you got? I oh, want to get into my low lights first. Yeah, <laughs> good. Do low lights. Oh, what do you okay. Hate? Um, so some of the things that I don't appreciate in Tarantino films, um, and he does this quite a lot in all his films. Like, oh, actually, let me do one low light. Okay, go for it. Uh it was difficult to watch. Um, the gore. 
with a lot of gore while watching it a lot. And I don't, <laughs> I was actually running, like, when I was watching this, I was like, Ooh, wow. There's an intense amount of blood. I wonder if, um, yeah, Tony's going to handle this. I was like, I was like, across my face. They kept like zooming on the guy's gaping ear hole. Oh, that was pretty nice. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm like, bro, stop showing it. Stop showing. Anyway. Very, very good job on the makeup though. Hey. Oh, it looked so real. Yeah. yeah. I mean, apart from the blood, the blood, uh, like, I- I'll forgive them that the blood doesn't look incredibly real. Um, that's also just like Tarantino style of overuse of gore and blood in his films. Um, and th- there are times where the blood just looks like paint. So it doesn't actually look like, you know how blood is generally like deep red or something like that? Um, no. You've never seen your own blood before? Not in a pool. Oh, in a pool. I mean, come I on. Really, I don't really want to get dark either, to be honest. Like, no, I haven't seen that amount. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think there, there's going to be any sort of like color dilation or something when it's when it becomes a pool. I don't know. Whatever. But yeah. what, what I'm saying is like the, the blood in this movie, for the most part, just looks more light red than it does look like blood. But I'm willing to forgive it because um, everything else in the film is just very, very impactful. Oh. They're cheap, right? Like, yeah, you can kind of assume what happened. Yeah, 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 and it's an, it's an easy point of like suspense of disbelief. But um, what I was going to say is um, the practical effects, though, like you know, with the with the ear being chopped off and everything, like that looked like in, insanely good. I was like, wow, that's uh, that's a really really good job with that practical effect. You're struggling, like you mm. see the struggle. Oh yeah. man, yeah, and I like the fact that he's holding the ear and he's he's like he's taunting a little bit you know there's a little bit of that sadistic uh nature to the to the character of uh, mr blonde uh, which is kind of enough it's very effective like really good scripting in that in that sense where um it's, it's something as small as cutting not i'm not saying that cutting his ear off is small but i'm saying that like the way he uses the ear to taunt the victim a bit is just a genius way of writing the character itself and the kind of sadistic uh nature that the character has um so anyway some low lights. Um, I have quite a few, and these, like again, like what I was saying before, what I was, yeah. what I was about to say <laughs> is that Tarantino has this way of uh, um, scripting in all his films. He does it all the time, where it's called like I think I've heard some YouTubers talk about it as well. They call it like Tarantinoisms, where mm-hmm. there's a lot of dialogue between characters that doesn't do anything to the story. And it has nothing to contribute and move the story forward. It actually oh, so your highlight. Your lowlight is my highlight. Oh my goodness, man! Yeah, doing, doing the legacy series with you is going to be interesting because he has so many of these things in his films. Heaps. Yeah. Like he has a lot of it in um, um, uh, what's it called? Hateful Eight. He does a lot of that dialogue stuff, which which is like meaningless. Um, you know, I've actually never seen that movie, and I didn't want to watch it, but maybe I'll like it. Maybe people just go. Well, that's the thing. It's like that was my most hated film, but I'm not sure anymore because people that I know have really good taste in film, um, and you know, can I can always like sort of see eye to eye with them in most parts of like film criticism. Um, he was saying like, "Hateful Eight is like one of his best films," and I was like, "Really?" I think at the time. I think at the time that I saw it, it was like I, I, I was going into the film already annoyed at like how Tarantino makes his films, <laughs> um, oh. but because the only film that really kept me interested in Tarantino was Inglorious Bastards. Like I thought, what he did with that movie was awesome, and it was like you, you don't like Django. I like Django, but um, I don't love it as much as everybody else. But again, I think it's the same thing as like Hateful Eight, 
where when we go to rewatch these films, when we review them, I think we're going to see them in a much different light now and, and try and see it for like what Tarantino, like knowing what Tarantino's style is and also just having to watch, like now I'm clocking, I don't know, hundreds of thousands of hours of watching films. And uh, I would say that I know a little bit more about film now, especially doing reviews and recaps and on the podcast, um, that I would probably have a bit more of a developed understanding of what, what's going on in the film. Anyway. So this Tarantinoism is the thing that I don't like about this film is that there are so many moments like the car scene where they're all like in regular clothes. You know, there's four of them in the car. Oh, they're talking about like, uh, I think they're talking about Andrea. They're talking about, yeah. Like, um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Elois. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. That scene. Oh yeah. Yeah. Like uh, it's kind of weird, weird. Actually, I understand what you're talking about. Cause like there are certain ones that I love of these things mm-hmm. and there are certain ones where I felt like, Oh, I don't know. Like, I think you've established this fact already. We don't need to spend a whole lot more time yeah, on it. Yeah, and, and that's just what Tarantino likes to do. He likes to do that with his characters. He likes to, um, and I wouldn't be surprised if this is what he says about the, his his filmmaking style. Um, in an interview, I wouldn't be surprised if he says this is that he likes the idea of characters doing what characters are supposed to do to move the story forward. But then he also likes the idea of characters just behaving normal. Like, like for, yeah. for, for example, like me and you, we go to work every day or whatever, and we're doing our work thing. And maybe the film um, is about us going to work, but then it shows us outside of work as well. You know, yeah. I think that's what I'm assuming that's what his thinking is with these characters. Like, um, you know, for example, we never see characters like go to the bathroom all the time or like brushing their teeth or anything, you know, whereas I feel like that's a thing that Tarantino would put in even though it's doing nothing to the character or the story. You know, he'll put in these monotonous things where, like, um, it doesn't make any sense that we would be learning about this this part of the character. It's like, okay, I understand, like, people go to sleep and they wake up and have and brush their teeth, but <laughs> I, I don't I need to see that it. To some extent, and I don't know if Tarantino has any of those particular Tarantinoisms in this film, hmm. but, like, for example, in that start starting conversation, right, about, like, Madonna and all that stuff, don't you feel that, like, this is a group of people talking about a topic that's not at all related to the film, Mm. which I love because it's like something that you might see normally, but you are getting your window into the types of people that these people are. Yeah. 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 And, and, and that's, that's not that that's not what I would call a Tarantinoism. Like that's what I would call is actually doing something for the character moving forward. We're learning something about the character. Like for example, the the opening scene in the cafe, like that's an awesome scene to set up the characters and give us the right impression of what these characters are like. I consider that more of a Tarantinoism because even that is not very common in, in filmmaking, in my opinion. Like, people just talking about random pop culture crap, I don't think, and I could be definitely wrong, I don't I haven't seen every film, but I don't think that was really commonplace until this film. Like, them talking about Madonna, and, you know, this film is not about Madonna, right? <laughs> this film is not about Madonna. Yeah. But then you're learning about the characters through this conversation. Now, I do agree with you in the sense that the conversation in the car is like kind of a poor attempt at that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I, I consider the Tarantinoisms ones where it's like, it's kind of moving the plot forward a tiny bit in the sense that you just learn more about the characters. Yeah. Yeah. So like th- those are one of my lowlights in this. And, and like you're saying, there's not a lot of this stuff that happens in the film, but there is kind of things like that. It um, actually happens surprisingly high amount. Like there's just a lot of like random jokes and random stories. I find. Mm. But for the yeah. most part, I would say like 95% of the film is all the dialogue which the film is mostly dialogue anyway, right? All the dialogue between the characters is 
interesting dialogue that really tells us a lot about the characters um, and how different they are. I, I heard a criticism about um, a criticism on Tarantino films saying that like all those characters are same, same. And although I, I, film? Or in, 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 in every film? single film, like in Reservoir Dogs and, um, like they're the same as each other in the film, or he's saying like they he reuses the Vic Vega uh, archetype for yeah, another film. exactly. Like the Vic Vega archetype is like a perfect example of that. It's like there's this like overtly obnoxious nature to all the characters that Tarantino has in his film, which I think that is true to an extent. But when if they're placing that criticism on Reservoir Dogs, I think they couldn't be any more wrong. Like wrong about that. Mm. Because I think Reservoir Dogs, the best thing about it is the difference between the characters. Like you have one character that's like really sympathetic and then you have another character that's completely the opposite of being sympathetic who wouldn't give a shit about anybody, um, who only cares about themselves. But then all of them share similarities of caring about themselves individually. <laughs> um, yeah. but, but some more than others. Like for example, one is probably more sympathetic towards his people because he has... He he values loyalty, I, aka uh, Mr. White, Harvey Cartel. Like he's quite loyal to his to the people around him, and especially loyal to Mr. Orange, who turns out to be the secret agent or uh, police officer. Um, like he is completely different to like Mr. Pink. Mr. Pink is someone who um, is probably the most professional criminal in a way. Well, he says it. Eight times, <laughs> he so. says it a lot. Like, <laughs> but he also lives it a lot. But he's also quite—he's quite, he's quite um, a panicky character too. Like, he panics so much because he—he's worried that the mission's going to go wrong. He's more sensitive to that. I didn't take him that way. Like, I felt like he was handling it pretty well. I mean, he's quite pragmatic. He's just trying to sort of have those conversations. I—I ne- I never took him as a panicker, to be honest. Well, he does—he does panic quite a bit. I mean, you know, like every. Like all the first uh, dialogue sequences, like inside the warehouse, you know, like he's, he's like, he's like, what are we going to do? Like, you know, this guy's like, please just let him die. You know, like he's, he's pragmatic in that sense because he's trying to think of like, how can we actually accomplish this, this mission? (laughs) I, yeah. I mean, I I never thought of him as panicked. I just kind of thought of him as like, you know, he's the one who thinks like it was a sting and he's like, we've got to get out of here. Now you Mm. might think that's a panicked response, but in hindsight, it's like the correct response, right? Mm. But I, th- yeah. I think it's his tone of voice as well. Like he's always very, very loud. He sounds like he's got panic behind his, behind his like delivery on everything. Yeah, okay. yeah. that's interesting how we both took his character. I took him as like a very again like pragmatic and okay. Um, well, he's not calm, he's is he? <laughs> oh, he's, he's not calm, but he seems collected. Like he's somewhat logical in how what he's doing. I think the collected part ab- about him, like the impression that you know of him being collected, is because he's done this numerous times and he's and he's just trying to get out of a really really bad situation exactly but it seems like he's not panicked because like you know there's conversations in the first act where he's like i don't know if i've done this i it, I, I can only say that i definitely am not the rat right i can't speak to joe cabot mm. and it's like as far i know you did it and then like mr white says you know for all i know you're the rat and he's like yeah now you're thinking like you know what i mean like it, it's not a panicked conversation um it's a it's a response to a panicky situation but i think mm. he's he's asking the right questions, trying to get him to think in an intelligent way to try and figure out what's going on. Mm. I don't know. That's how I took it at least. Like, do, do you remember like uh, the, the, the first altercation between Mr. Pink and Mr. White? And then, mm. and then Mr. White, Harvey Cartel, he ends up like punching him. He's on the ground. Yeah. Like the escalation to that was kind of like that panicky thing that I was sort of, sort of I don't remember. About. what was the escalation to that again? Like they wanted to, 
let the kid... They wanted to learn... Oh, he was telling, he was telling him off mm. for telling him his name, I think. Right? Yeah, yeah. It was all to do with, like... Yeah, like you shouldn't reveal your name, okay. like um, and and then he was he was opening up to him, and um, and he was telling him like I had to be honest with him because you know the kid was dying in the back, like I had yeah. to I had to do something. Like, what would you do? And then and then it escalated, and they and then he was trying to tell him like it like the repercussions of you telling like the first name, um, and he was I guess from that like I'm I'm getting the sense that Mister Pink is becoming very because he he does feel like he's getting panicked because of the fact that we're going to reveal too much of like who we are and it's going to expose like how our vulnerability as like uh criminals yeah I, I do agree with everything you're saying i mean i guess i wouldn't use the word panicked to describe it but i get how you could use that term like he is the one who is very he was the most worried about the negative repercussions yeah of what's yeah, yeah 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 <laughs> and, and, and i think that's what i mean is that like he is the most stressed out about repercussions to things going wrong when you look at somebody yeah. like uh Mr. Blonde, he doesn't give a shit. He just came out of he jail. Doesn't care at all. He doesn't care at yeah. all. He's like he's quite sadistic. Just came out of jail. Probably sociopathic. Um, he's quite calm. Although there's some like really strange lines that uh, kind of go against of him being calm. You know, remember the line that he says after almost like having a standoff with uh, Mr. White when they first meet. Oh, like my heart is beating. Yeah, my heart is beating really fast. I was like, well, that's interesting. What a interesting line to. Of that character. But he didn't even say he was scared. He just said, like, that was a really exciting moment, everyone. Like, like did, do you think that was, like, part of his sociopathic side, maybe? Like, I kind of think Kind so, of like, lying about, like, his heart being fast. Was he being a little bit, like, patronizing? I don't know. Well, I wonder if, yeah, like, it's hard to sort of look into it too much. Like, the way I thought of it was kind of like him just, he doesn't, he just says everything he thinks, I suppose. And, mm. like, maybe he was, like, you know, he doesn't say he was scared. He said he was excited. Yeah. But you know what I mean? yeah, like, I, it just threw me off a little bit because it, it wasn't what I was expecting to learn from that character. You thought he was going to be super cool all the time, uh, yeah, right? yeah. And then he was like, yeah. "Oh, I just had a moment where my heart was like racing a little bit." I was like, oh, "Okay, interesting." Yeah. Um, okay. <laughs> what are the low lights? What are the low lights? <laughs> what are the low lights? Um, I think I have a problem with uh, the um, the editing with it, um, and I think this is still like a. This could probably be thrown in the Tarantinoism. Uh, the way he edits his films, it's um. I feel like you break the pace a bit. You talking about the flashbacks? Or are you talking about not not the way the flashbacks are used? Because I really love the structure of the story. I really love like how it's non-linear, um, mm. and I I love how we go into certain parts of the story in a non-linear way to emphasize, um, like uh excitement and adrenaline and all that kind of stuff. I, I, I love all that, but it's more so like the way he cuts um, his scenes. And I've seen him do this in like Pulp Fiction and I've seen him do this in Jackie Brown. And I find them more jarring and annoying as opposed to like a smooth transition into different uh, scenes. So, so an example is in the warehouse, like he does this quite a lot in, in the warehouse scenes, particularly mm-hmm. when we're on when we're focused on um, Mr. Orange, like he's on the ground, like he's swimming in a pool of blood. Um, there's these cuts that he does. Um, maybe it's a little bit to do with the camera work too, where mm-hmm. um, I feel completely. Oh, I was going to say disorientated, but disorientated is not the word. <laughs> but like, I feel like um, I feel like the the connection we're supposed to have in those scenes is getting affected by the way he cuts like one angle from the top, one angle from the bottom, and then a wide shot 
and then a close-up shot and then an extreme close-up shot and then a wide shot. It's like that's that's such jarring transitions. Like I I, I, oh. I don't expect like when I'm watching a good film or no, no, I shouldn't say good film when I'm watching a film. Like the rule of thumb is like you don't do like extreme close-up to wide angle to extreme close-up to medium close-up. Like you just don't do it in that format for the reason of like you're you're breaking a little bit of the viewer attention a bit. So what would you, what, what's ideal, I guess? Because I don't know anything about filmmaking. Like I, ideal would be like, don't go from an extreme close-up, like, you know, where it's square on his face, mm. like to a wide shot or vice versa. Like <laughs> you, just want to go, you don't want to do, you want to do a smooth from far away to close is what you're saying. Yeah. There, there should be sort of a gradual build up to like you focusing on something and then pulling away from that focus. But if it's like a warehouse, like how far away can you really go? Right. Like- well, I, for, like when you're in a confined space, I don't expect to have that many extreme close-ups. <laughs> that, that's another problem. Oh, cause you're thinking like, but don't you want the actors faces to do? You do, you do. Work? But like, um, the problem with Tarantino and, the, and his decisions that he makes with this is that when he does these extreme close-ups, they have no real relevance to what's happening on the scene. Now, it's, it's a difference. There's a different story. Like, for example, um, a, a really good use of close-ups is Silence of the Lambs. Um, when we're when we have that famous inter not interrogation with a famous like scene between Jodie Foster's character, Jodie Foster. I think yeah, so, Jodie yeah. Foster's character yeah. and uh, Anthony Hopkins. You know, yeah. when she meets him for the first time. Like the the use of close ups and cutting in that in that particular scene is brilliant. It does everything it does to portray the menacing effect of who Hannibal Lecter is with such little movement because he's a he's a man of like minimal movement. But in his minimal movement you get this menacing fear and evil portrayal. And that's all right. like a lot of that is contributed or attributed to the really good cutting and um camera work in that. Um, <clears throat> so like the way Tarantino does that, does this in his films, especially like Reservoir Dogs, it's, it's not showing any real significance to, to the extreme close-ups. What, one of the shots that really annoyed me actually was, um, the slow track towards Harvey Cartel while, um, Mr. Pink is talking in the background and it's for like a good, Thirty seconds like the, or something inside the warehouse. Second room? No, the second room. No, no, it's in the warehouse, like um, the main in the main room. room. Yeah. It, oh, okay. It's, it's, so it's they, when they come out of the bathroom and then they're back in the main main part of the warehouse. They're <clears> zooming in on a, Harvey. Yeah, Cattel. it's 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 not a it's not a lens zoom in. It's a track zoom in. <clears> yeah, okay. but he does this track zoom in. And it lasts for like thirty seconds. Well, and like Pink is just talking about random stuff. Pink is just talking about random stuff, and we're just focused on. We're just focused. Yeah, we're just focused on uh, Mr. White. Yeah, that. exactly. Yeah, <laughs> and it has no significance to the character whatsoever. And I'm like, oh, this Tarantino, you're so annoying. Like, great filmmaker, I love the movies that he makes, but he, it's so annoying when he does. Does he kind of do that again, or does he get better at this over time? I don't know. Um, he. Like I'm, I'm going to refer to like *Inglorious Bastards*, and, and one of the reasons why I love that film, and I think it's his it, it's his masterpiece by far, is because mm. everything that he's done as a Tarantinoism and his style of filmmaking, the style of directing, really reaches a point where it's perfect, and I think it's all shown in *Inglorious Bastards*. 
Yeah. yeah. Okay. Cool. Um, okay. Let's just talk about the stuff that I do like about this movie because it's way sure. more. Than I've spent so much time just <laughs> seven minutes <laughs> talking about the lowlights. Um, make it seem like I don't like this movie. Okay. So for the record, I really love this movie. Mm. I think it's great from a story <laughs> from from a storytelling <laughs> perspective and from a character perspective. It's great from those two main things. And one of the things that I really love about this is, is um, I mentioned it before, the contrast between all the characters. All of them are doing the same thing. They all, like, the illusion is that they seem like they would be the same characters, the same kind of archetype, but they're not. They're so, so different. It's like they're all got, they all share charisma, but in a very different way. Um, Harvey Cartel's character, Mr. White, he's like, he's kind of like the, uh, the big brother of the group. Almost right. Like he's mm, he's yeah. the guy that cares about the people that he works with, and you learn a little bit about that kind of like when he's when we when he gets interviewed by Joe in the flashback. Um, actually, we learn more about like his upbringing when he when we do the flashback. But um, everything that we learn about his character, even up to the midpoint of the film, like we get this feeling that he's the guy that you can trust. He's the guy that you can have a beer with. He's the mm. guy that you can like, you know give you a four four digit pin number for your bank account details. You know, like he, he feels like that maybe not that. I don't know, but like he, <laughs> it's definitely a little bit too hard. But but like he, he's the most moral um of the criminals. of the criminals. He's the most moral. But it's also very unconventional morality too. Like he's 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 so loyal to his his guys and he's willing to you could almost like say that he's he's willing to take a bullet for his for his um for his teammates, yeah. right? Like you, you get that kind of feeling. But then at the same time, like that is a very moral thing to do and a very noble thing to do for your for your friends. But then at the same time, like without any hesitation, he's willing to just gun down police officers. <laughs> yeah, he does that like really yeah, like in, in that. Film. Yeah, yeah. So it's interesting. He has this like the character has this juxtaposition about him, which is on one hand being very moral, but then on the other hand being like super immoral, like doing really good yeah, things but being really, very immoral. He gets offended by what Mr. Blonde does, like murdering those people, but at the same time he has like a conversation mm. in one of the flashbacks with Mr. Orange where he's like, yeah. you know what, if you want to get this thing, you got to like smash a guy in the face and that's going to make it, you know, right. shut everybody up. Right, and that's the thing, is like he's willing yeah. to criticize even the his own team of doing completely heinous and immoral things but then like he wants a guard of his way to protect the guy that he feels is responsible for his death which is yeah mr orange so it's interesting like he's he's one of my favorite characters because he shows and represents all these parts of like good humans and evil humans all in one character right yeah i like that that's a really good take on them because like you kind of see him as like sort of the moral compass of the film a little bit but he it's kind of it, 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 that's one of the things i really like about it in the sense that like they make you kind of fall in love with him because he's like the one who's like taking care of orange and being such a nice guy and he's like you can't do this he can't he's gonna die soon and then they pepper in all these things of him like murdering a bunch of cops or <laughs> like being happy to like yeah you know smash on the face yeah exactly and, and and that's the brilliant thing about like uh the way tarantino writes these characters because um, he makes you like these characters like on some different level. You're you can connect with them in some way, some more than others. And yeah. for me, I connected with Mister White a lot more because I just like the the dynamic part of his character. 
Um, I re- yeah, I mean, I-, I could talk about all the other characters, but I feel like we should talk a lot about these characters in the recap. But I'm just going to use yeah, the- like this movie is a character film, right? It is so a character film. Yeah, it should come out in the in the recap. Yeah, I would yeah, yeah. Um, something that I didn't think I was going to appreciate, but then by the end of the film, oh. like when the credits rolled. I was like, okay, I actually like that. <laughs> was the fact that there was zero musical score in the entire film? Oh, within like the seventies uh, um, radio music? No, there's just no, there's no score to the film. You know, there's no like orchestra happening in the background. There's no like music that seeps in any of the scenes. There's nothing. Oh, so all the music is just like on purpose. Well, like it has, a, well, all, it the, has a real... all the music is just like songs from artists. Yeah, that's the only music. Because the radio is turned on. The radio is turned on. Yeah, or there was one scene where it was just on in the background. What was it? What song? There's was a scene it? where he where where Michael Madsen leaves the warehouse and you hear like neighborhood sounds. Okay. Which was really quite jarring, um, considering that you've been in an empty warehouse the oh, entire time. That's but, interesting. Like, I didn't pick that up. I, for one, like I do agree with you in the sense that, like, I like I know like Nolan is like really famous for this. I hate it. I, I hate the oh something serious is about to happen. <laughs> like that noise. Like, man, <laughs> I hate that noise, dude. Yeah. Like I love <laughs> just having background be background. Um, I'll say it to you because I know you're a score guy. You love scores. Well, musical scores is, is is kind of what carries a lot of the scenes. It sets the tone for the scene. But um, I, I think uh, Tarantino, with this film in particular, he really, he really like got me to really appreciate like how much good storytelling and character dialogue can be so interesting and so engaging that we don't need musical scores in the background. Now, I'm not saying, I'm not saying that you. Okay, every single filmmaker should like follow the Tarantino style. No, that's not what I'm saying. <laughs> I'm saying that he's just done a great job at just making me think. Good, this one, yeah, this one was like really well done. There was there were points where I was kind of like, man, there's like, it's little, it's literally just dialogue. There's no musical score in the background. <laughs> raises the tension. I don't need like fake tension in the background. Like this one. It's a slow build, and it's just like you're seeing the characters, yeah. right? You're seeing the characters, you're seeing the situation, you're seeing how they're reacting. Yeah. Like that's making me tense enough. Yeah, that's true. Um, okay, so we're really, really far into the podcast already. We haven't even gone to the recap. I feel like we could probably do this a little bit unconventional because this movie doesn't really have a classic three act structure that we're used to in most films. I feel like this movie has more of a two act structure. Act one is more like. Um, before the heist, <clears throat> no, no, no. Sorry, I'll, I'll say that Act One is after the heist, and then act, yeah, there is no yeah, there is no heist, and then Act Two is the reveal of said heist, maybe or not even the reveal of heist, but the like like yeah. Act Two is more like the reveals or something like that. Do we just want to use the arbitrary points you've picked out here? Okay, I don't know. Like, what do you want? What do you want to do? Um. <clears throat> Do we even want to read it? Like, to be honest, it's like, it's pretty, we can just sort of summarize it pretty easily, We right? could summarize it, yeah. Maybe we could just, like, read bits and pieces of the act and, like, yeah. and, and have we'll some kind of, yeah, yeah, so, so we'll, we'll just do some kind of, like, unconventional recap. And for those of you who don't know what a recap is, and you're this far into the podcast, a recap, we'll transition there to show us we're getting into the recap, <laughs> um, a recap is us traditionally talking uh, talking about the plot or just reading the plot and we stop at the end of each act and then we interject what we thought about that particular act. Um, but for this one, because this one doesn't have a traditional 
act structure, it has a very, very different way of um, presenting what the story is and who the characters are. Um, but also not in a way that is so unconventional that um, it's unfamiliar territory. It's just a different feeling when you're watching it. I can imagine like people that are not so into film watching something like Reservoir Dogs might bore them. What do you, really? what do you reckon? Uh, it depends on what you're interested in, right? Like, if you're like a guy who enjoyed 12 Angry Men, I think you'd enjoy this. And if you're someone who True. did, you would hate it. I, I, like, I like that you actually came up with that example of 12 Angry Men, because that's a great movie. I, I really like that. Yeah. yeah. I love that movie, yeah. right? And, like, just, like, I don't know, people, you know, like, it's like the thing as well. Yes, just People's emotions setting an entire plot. I think that's great. You don't need to have, like, oh, it's a setup, and then the action, and then... Yeah. But, but, but if, yeah. if, you, if you told somebody... If somebody said, hey, um, should I watch Reservoir Dogs? And you say, yeah. And they said, what is it about? And you're to say, uh, it's about like six criminals um, who who get involved in a, in a heist that goes wrong and then they have to find a way to get out of it. That would probably think immediately to their mind that it's going to be like this cool action-packed heist film, right? right. You know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, for sure. And like, so, so just from the synopsis alone – I think people would go into this if they read that synopsis. They go into this, and the whole movie is like dialogue between characters. I don't think they'll enjoy it. Yeah, it's very easy to be disappointed by this film. Like it does sound like something else, right? Mm. Yeah, yeah. But I think it's like one of the best surprises you can get. Like, like when I first watched Reservoir Dogs, and actually for the record, first time I ever watched Reservoir Dogs, didn't really like it. <laughs> you like it? Oh man! Okay, I, I saw that. I saw this movie. I think probably when I was like seventeen years old. And Similar time to me, yeah. I, I just like there was something about it that I didn't like, and I think those things are what I was talking about before with the Tarantinoisms and and like the lack of like musical score in the film. I, I think that's what it is. Like it's hard to tell. It was like seventeen years old was like such a long time ago, but um, yeah. but you know now like I'm seeing films in a different lens, and I have a more much like developed understanding of filmmaking itself, and I appreciate the craft. Um, hence why we're doing this podcast. But yeah, I like I didn't like it at first, and then when I rewatched it, like this is the first time I watched it since I was seventeen years old. Oh damn! Yeah, I've seen this like yeah, probably like close to ten times. Damn! So you know, that, yeah, yeah, you're an expert on this movie then. So I'd like. Nah, I wouldn't say I'm an expert, but like, okay, I've seen it like close to ten times. But like, I would say the first eight were when I was like seventeen or something because I had it on DVD. Right. So I just pop it on as background noise a lot. I'm surprised you had um, DVD, not VHS. Yeah, man. <laughs> I I used to just buy random DVDs that were on sale. Right. Like that's how I used to live. All right. Um, and then I actually got Stan. On, on, on a 30-day trial just to watch this movie. First time for probably, like, close to... This is on Netflix. Yeah, I know, but, like, I don't... I didn't want to do Netflix, because I've had Netflix for a long time. I want to try something oh, new, okay. you know? Okay. Shout out to Stan. Um, but, yeah, no, one of the things I do love about this movie... Actually, oh, should we just, just start with the recap? Let, let, let's, like, start with the recap, and we'll just see how far we get into it, because there are particular things that I really would like to, us to talk about. Well, I don't even want to like read it from here. I'm just thinking like, okay, first scene, right? First scene, breakfast inside. Let's the, breakfast inside scene. the cafe. Yeah, okay. I love this scene. Yeah. This scene is fantastic. And this is like to me, when people say like they hate Tarantino dialogue, I will point to this and say this is the best Tarantino dialogue, <laughs> just because like you learn about the characters. It's entertaining. It's about things that like normal people talk about. I just, I just love how like people always always say that like Tarantino films don't feel realistic. I don't understand where they get that. Like. You watch a Mission Impossible, and like they're just always like the mission, the mission. Oh, you know, it's all just that. Like this one is like people talking about stuff. That yeah, I, I would totally disagree about like that sentiment of people saying that it's 
Tarantino makes the most unrealistic movies. But but I think that like when they're saying that, I think they're thinking about like all the gore and like you know the unrealistic yeah, yeah, yeah. like um, gunshots and stuff. You know, he goes overboard. Um, I think that, I think that's what they're really talking about. But the dialogue is such like a refreshing take that I think you got to take that big win. But I really do love this. Just, I mean, it's hard to really talk about it outside of the fact that it's fun. You see a lot about the characters. It's got a Seinfeld-esque quality to it, which is like, you know, was that around the same no, time? No, nothing about Seinfeld, so I can't really chime in on that. Oh, so <laughs> Seinfeld, you know, it's very much like, you know, you know how like in Friends, like the, these are people who are normal people going through somewhat um, based in reality, but usually quite out there scenarios, right? Mm-hmm. Whereas what Seinfeld usually is is like very mundane scenarios, but then the people react in like extremely uncharacteristically weird ways, like getting lost in a parking lot or waiting a very long time for Chinese food. Like that's the plot point of an episode, and that's something that everyone goes through every day. And I feel like talking about like I don't want to tip, and people questioning why don't you want to tip, and then trying to have that argument of you know women have these jobs and this is what allows them to be successful and he's like yeah but if you don't like this job you should quit or you should learn to type and get an office job like that's just a very mundane conversation yeah, that's like everyday conversations for sure yeah yeah um well, what do you think the so like mr pink like is my favorite character in this scene um yeah for sure because he represents everything that i feel about with tips <laughs> <laughs> I agree. Well, you know, no, I disagree a little bit. I, <laughs> I was like, man, I, this guy, man, he should, I should be having a coffee with this guy in the United States. Like, he's totally on my side. I am a fan of his viewpoint. I think tips are stupid, but I think in the current scenario, you would be a terrible person to not tip. Yeah, yeah, like, for sure. You should, like, he's saying, like, I would vote, right? And you should vote to make businesses pay a living wage to people. But until that happens, you need to tip, is my Yeah, opinion. I mean, like, I, I, don't, I don't, like, say that with, like, a full serious, like, statement. Like, <laughs> like what I'm saying is that, like, um, uh, like, when I first went to the States, I was, like, I didn't know about the whole tipping culture. I'd seen it in movies and TV series, but I had no yeah. idea about the whole tipping culture. And, um... So I remember when I went with my mates for, it might have been dinner or something like that. Um, <laughs> we just finished the meal and then they all like tipped and then my mates were like, oh, you're not going to tip? And I was like, no. <laughs> yeah. Why? <laughs> Tipping has seeped into Australia and I refuse to allow it. We but not in, the, not, not, not in the same way as the as United States. No, but it's seeped. It's a seep. It's yeah. like, you know, sometimes... They'll like they'll turn the thing over to you and say, "Do you want a tip?" And I'm like, "No, it should be included as part of the prices. And if it's not, please raise the prices. I'm okay with it." Yeah. Right. Yeah. But I like, mean, we have no business like on demanding tips in Australia and New Zealand. Like we 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 actually like I think Australia has, especially in New South Wales and and uh, Victoria, hmm. with like the highest paying salaries for hospitality workers. It's actually crazy. That's great. <laughs> I actually quite like it. Like I think over there, like. The idea that I have to judge your performance and then I have to pay you for that performance and then I have to deal with the fallout if I didn't like your performance, like that really upset me. That is not an, that's not an enjoyable experience. Like I've had situations where I didn't tip someone right. for a purpose yeah. and they have to say, like, man, what's wrong? You didn't like my thing? And, I, and like, I'm not a confrontational guy, right? So I'll be like, no, yeah, I didn't like it that much. And then I have to explain it. Yeah. And then he has to like sort of justify it. And then he has to say that they have like a, oh, I had a bad week or whatever. Or I didn't know you didn't like that. 
Yeah. You know, like, it's just, it puts a lot of onus on the diner to do the job of the employer. Yeah, I mean, you, you're right. essentially doing the heavy lifting for somebody who hasn't done any lifting whatsoever. Yeah. But why am I doing quality control for, for a waiter? Like, what, why am I doing mm. that? You know what? You should run a tight ship. If I don't like it, I won't come back. Yeah, absolutely. And you shouldn't tip for that. Um, but more, more to the point of like what Mr. Pink talks about, like the, the, <laughs> yeah. the, the, his, his script in, in, the, in the scene is so pitch perfect to the kind of criticism that I would normally have for the tipping culture. Like he, he, he mm. says like, like the, she didn't even do anything special. She literally delivered the food and said nothing. You know, she was nice. Yeah, sure. Yeah. yeah but she didn't do anything special. Does she deserve a tip? Like, so he raises mm. like a good point, which is the, the point that I always want to make when I'm tipping or when I have to tip somebody um, that's a waiter, waitress or a bartender or a barista or something. Right. It's like, it's true. Like tips should, should be earned. It shouldn't be given to you. Like tips should be something that you you naturally volunteer for because you think that person's done a job that's above and beyond what you expect. And that I, so the thing I hate about that though is then like it like what how much can they really realistically do? I'm not sure about your thoughts on this, but like what generally happens is they fill up your water more often. Cool, I wouldn't pay for it if they if it was an extra, but whatever. <laughs> I, I, and then they come <laughs> and ask you like seven times, "Hey, how's your food? Hey, what do you think?" I don't know, man. Like, I don't know. I don't get away from me. I want to have my own time to myself. <laughs> I don't know what they're doing, and so I pay them that tip. Yeah. But at the same time, I would love the start of a, a meal. Be like, hey, you know what? If you never come and talk to me, like, I'll give you the tip. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I don't want that conversation. Yeah. Yeah, and, and, and I guess you're just a different person. Like, I feel like you're much more pragmatic in that situation when it comes down to things, which is, which is funny. It's interesting. It's, it's probably, like, the most, like... Uh, capitalist thing that I've heard come out of you <laughs> instead of like anything else. <laughs> it's, oh, yeah, you know I hate it. <laughs> Wait, what's the most capitalist thing? What, what I, what, what I, well, what, what like I you sort of insinuate that there has to be this uh, this uh, kind of system where you have to work for it in, in some kind of way. But then also, like, I don't, you also don't see the value in what that service even means to, to um, endorse like tipping service. Yeah, like, I personally, like, I understand they've got to work for it, and I understand, like, they're doing the best they can, but all of the levers that they can pull, I don't want them to pull them. Yeah, yeah, you, it, that's just something that you don't want to have in that type of uh, medium, I think. Whereas, like, for, yeah. for, for me, if, 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 I, if, I, if I get a waiter or a waitress that is going to go above and beyond, and I feel that it's natural, and I'm, and I'm really connecting with that person, it may or may not, like, actually, like, to be honest, like, more often than not, it's not going to, like, entice me to... Or encourage me to tip because I just don't want to. Because <laughs> like that's like that's like my rule of thumb. I just don't want to tip anybody. It's like you're getting paid to do a job. Just in, like, in America, though, are you are you open to it or? Um. Well, I feel like I have to. <laughs> you have to. Like, me, I, I feel like it's a cudgel. It's, it's it. like a cudgel policy where like I like people are going to look at me as the freaking wicked wicked witch of the west if I don't like. Uh, yeah, for sure. So. No, like someone has to do something awful for me not to tip. Them. Yeah, and it's crazy too. Like it's gotten to a point where I remember the first time I went to America, like fifteen percent, great tip. Now I think twenty percent is like a great tip. Like it, it's just all going. You know what's up. worse, man? You know how like the fact that like I remember I went to a pub and I ordered everything off a QR mm. code, and then. <laughs> <laughs> And, and every time you order, it's like, so like it's a, what am I tipping for? <laughs> and I'm like, I haven't got it yet. I don't even know if it's good or not. Well, but the, that's besides the point. Is like, there's zero interaction with the staff. 
Like, well, they do bring you the food, don't yeah, they? Yeah, but they bring you the food, but it's not like, what, do they stand there and go, oh, so how's your day? Like, how's it going? You tell me about your... Uh, you like, don't want that. That's the part I don't want. But, I don't want but, but the thing is, like, you food. introduce something so automated with that is essentially a robot. Like, you don't need to interject. Yeah. So I'm not going to expect, like, to, for you to go above and beyond. But don't throw in, like, whether, like, would you like the tip or not? It's like, come on, dude. Yeah. <laughs> So dishonest. Anyway, <laughs> we have a lot to say about the tipping culture, don't we? <laughs> don't let it come in to Australia. Do not let but, it. Fan, don't do it. But the, this is actually why I thought the scene was brilliant. Not for the not for the sake of like you know the character Mister Pink um, being the real representation of what I think should should happen in, in a service, but I think it really establishes the character. Right, it establishes that he has zero sympathy for people. He's, mm-hmm. he's a very pragmatic guy. He wants yeah. to get you, the job done. And that sets up what like his decisions are going to be and what you expect him to do for the rest of the film. And it's amazing because he's very consistent all the way to the end. See, I feel like they're all like that. Like yeah. Mr. White taking the book, being annoyed, but having like that air of authority. Uh, Mr. Blonde like saying, do you want me to shoot this guy? Like straight away, yeah. do you want violence? Yeah. Like I know he's joking, yeah. but that's like that's where his head yeah. goes, right? Yeah. You get a lot of Mr. Like Brown, which is kind of funny because, like, you know, you never see him again in the film, pretty it's much. But Tarantino, isn't it? Yeah, it's just a funny conversation. Yeah, it's it's weird because, like, when we were, when did we get the reveal for the police officer? I think it's like the, at the midpoint of the film, right? Yeah, yeah, pretty much. Um, I was thinking that because we hadn't seen Mr. Brown, Tar- aka Tarantino, for a while, I thought maybe he was going to be another secret reveal, but then. He wasn't. <laughs> I was really happy they decided like not to introduce any more characters. Right. Like this was perfect. Yeah, yeah. But I, I just thought that I didn't think we we're gonna like get his character killed off early. I mean, he's killed off early in the script, but we don't see that until like later in the film, way to the end. Yeah. Um. So that I, I thought that was gonna be another reveal, but it's yeah. Um. It is what it is. So one thing I do like about this film, this starting sequence, is that, like, you know, you get that starting song, you get the title card, and then straight away, it's the end of the heist. Mm. I appreciate they didn't show us the yeah. heist. I didn't want to show us the yeah, heist. Yeah, yeah, because Tarantino's yeah. intention was all about um, how to show good characters on screen and how to write those characters um, um, in one sort of very, very efficient script. Um, and it's interesting because I can see, like, I, I felt this throughout the film. I felt that the movie was longer than the one hour and 45 minutes. It's only because mm. like when it's only dialogue, it just naturally always feels longer. Um, yeah. Cause there's not so much like scene setting stuff and yep. it's, it's just all plot moving in a way. Right? Yeah. Well, there's, there's no like big action set pieces that really break up that monot- uh, monotony a little bit. So um, in and of itself, the movie is monotonous, but I don't think that's a bad thing for what he accomplishes by the end. Um, yeah, that makes sense. Because the characters are just so interesting. <laughs> um, one thing that's kind of interesting for me, I guess, like moving on a little bit, like when the movie starts and um, Orange is in the back, he's like really freaking out, right? Mm-hmm. And I remember thinking, man, he's freaking out a lot for like a hardened criminal. And it's kind of like <laughs> setting up the fact that he's exactly, not. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> I thought that as well because I was like, wow, he seems like, a dude that's fresh into this business. He feels like a guy that's never done this before. He's got like no experience being a criminal, never been shot or anything. I was like, why is he acting like a regular citizen? Then it makes sense. Yeah. When you learn about him later. Um, but yeah, yeah. Sorry, go ahead. 
No, I was, I was just saying like, that's cool. I mean, I'm, I'm like skipping stuff like in a way to not have to do the actual recap. <laughs> but like you know, that conversation with Pink in that warehouse, like when they go into the other mm-hmm. room, I actually like. Yeah, you're you're kind of right. He's a bit panicked, but I think he really like that conversation is what sets the scene for the entire film, right? Mm. Like you're getting all of that context of what's happened. You're getting like Pink's views. You're getting suspicion cast on Blonde. Blonde. Like you're getting yeah. suspicion cast on everybody. Yeah. Like it really does a great job of just sort of setting up everything yeah. else that's about to happen. Because it's actually the um, <clears throat> that's the first time that we get um, an understanding of like what actually happened. Like you know what the heist was. Um, we didn't even know like it was a heist and like even in that car situation where he's like ble- bleeding to death and all that, like we didn't even know yeah. it was a heist up until that point. Um, yeah, you, like, you don't know what the job is or even that they're criminals, mm. really. Yeah, exactly. Like for if you went into this film and you had no idea what it was about, you probably wouldn't get like after that um, initial cafe scene. I don't think you would you would get the impression that these guys are criminals and they're about to do a job. I don't think you get yeah. that at all. I, like they could have been in the band. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Like in rock band members have done way worse than what they were talking about. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So that's why it was really, really smart to set up the movie like that because there's a dy- there's a dynamic and an individualism to all the characters that seems so interesting enough for you to keep hanging in there to, to learn more about them later on in the film. So, like when we get to that initial um, warehouse scene, um, there's a lot of exposition that happens just between the two characters, Mr. Pink and Mr. White, and it's one of the coolest ways to establish the the plot or like the stakes at hand um, mm. because it it feels so natural to the characters. Um, yeah, and like you're getting this exposition, but not like Tenet style. I know a bunch of stuff and I'm going to tell it to mm. you, right? It's, it's in the form of questions and accusations and rebuttals. Yep. Like, yep. it's a really engaging way to get that exposition. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's like how, I mean, it's how you would expect those characters to really behave in such panic situations where something went wrong and, um, and now you're about to tell me that you're, you're being honest to this guy who you have no idea whether we should actually just get rid of him. But you're, now you're telling me like we should keep him because like he's one of us or whatever, for whatever reason. Um, Mr. Pink was willing to go along with what Mr. White's plan was because I think he just respected him as well. But he's, he was also not willing to compromise like what he believed was true to him, which was like, I've got the diamonds. I know where they are. Do you want to come with me? Um, you know, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, we've got to go now. Yeah, we've got to go now. Like, yeah. There's a lot of urgency behind what he wanted to do. He's more concerned about getting out, whereas Mr. White is more concerned about saving his friend. Um mm. Uh, when we meet Mr. Blonde, oh, actually, actually, like before we meet Mr. Blonde, like the first jo- like flashback that we get, um, I think is Mr. White, right? That's the first like non-linear part. Do we get that? Uh, yeah, actually, yeah, we get that at this point. Yeah, I think, yeah, I think yeah. This is the first part, right? Like, so we learn about we get to learn a bit more about White. Yeah, yeah, we learn about like how he, um. Like when, like his childhood or something, like the way he was brought up. No, not at all. You just hear, you just see him talk to Joe. Oh, just talk about like. Wait, where did I get that from then? <laughs> I think he tells um, Mr. Orange about where he grew up. Oh, he yeah. just says where, right? Nothing about how. Yep. But yeah, I feel like that particular flashback was probably one that was like not super necessary. Like it's just really talking about the job, yep. and maybe it allows you to learn about like what the job but that, is. But, but, then, but then you start to realize that that was kind of like the format of like doing the flashbacks. Is like the flashbacks was in a form of like them getting interviewed for the job, right? And then getting yeah. the job. 
because I think there's a couple of flashbacks. Like there's a white flashback and there is Vince. a blonde, an orange, mm. and a group. One, right? Pink. I feel like Mr. Pink didn't, was the only one that didn't have the flashback. He doesn't get flashback. No. Yeah. And I feel like white's flashback is pretty inconsequential. The blonde flashback is like really powerful yeah. storyline wise. Yeah. We can talk about that later. And the group one is quite powerful. And also the orange one is really powerful. But the white one, I think. <laughs> the group one's funny. I love it. It's like, why do I get Mr. Pink? It's because you're a faggot. <laughs> Well, you're crazy. This film is so much Oh, my fun. God. And I don't know how I feel about this. Like, so much weirdly casual racism. Oh, yeah. And I mean, it's, it's weird because, like, this is 1992, so it's not like it's, like, right about the time of the civil rights movement. So, like, yeah. um, if there was any time that you could probably, like, have these kind of casual racist jokes, then it might have been around the time of, like, the 1960s, but then even then it would have been a little bit harsh. Yeah. But, but this is, like, a lot of hard R. Yeah. A lot of hard R's in, in this yeah. film. And, yeah, like... Yeah. It's weird. Like, a part of me is thinking, like, doesn't add anything to the plot. And I should hate him for that. But then Tarantino-isms, you know, there are just little things that don't add to the plot. Mm. So maybe I should accept it. But, like, it's just a lot of hard R's from a lot of white people. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it, it is weird, eh? Like, like when I was watching, I was, I was sort of thinking, man, this is, like, the amount of N-words they're using in these in these scenes are, like, jarring. <laughs> yeah. I'm actually... No one got offended by that. No, no, like, yeah. I'm, I'm not really offended by it because I do believe like that's how those characters probably would have spoken. <laughs> um, <clears throat> yeah, but like it, uh, it doesn't do anything for the plot, which I should be okay with. Like it, but, it yeah. doesn't, it doesn't. But it's one of those kind of like misnomer things, I think, because like, um, like, like if you were to be nitpicky about that type of stuff. Um, then you'd probably say, yeah. yeah, but they wouldn't say this word in their sentences. And they, they, like, the thing that's weird is that from a storyline point of view, I can see them saying this word in their everyday yeah, life. Yeah, and so yeah. maybe seeing it... Yeah, okay, you know what? I'll take it back. It's just it's just a bit it's weird. It's a bit weird, yeah. But um, like, character-wise, I get it. Yeah. Uh, movie-wise, based on how Tarantino does his stuff, I also mm. get it. Mm. Exactly. Um, well, one thing I want to talk about actually a little bit is um, Blonde. Right, like they talk about how blonde is a psycho person, like probably fifteen minutes before you see him for the first time. So I think like it's pretty great how when you see blonde for the first time, you're anticipating him. I like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, he's he, the, actually the, that guy, Michael Masden, Masden, Madsen, Madsen. Madsen. He always plays that kind of character. That really cool with the glasses, like the shades, um, mm. colored. He's always playing that kind of character, um, and I think he suits it really well. Um, when he's interrogating—it's not, not even interrogation—when he's torturing <laughs> that um, that police officer, like that scene was so pivotal. Uh, pivotal about like what you could like lean into what the character is about, right? The only thing that we've learned about this character is all in that scene when he's getting interviewed for the job. Uh, See, I don't know. I think that's kind of interesting. When you hear about him the first time, he's a psychopath. When you see him the first time, he actually acts like a psychopath. Mm. And then you get the flashback, and he seems like a completely different person, right? Like just this loyal, friendly guy who everyone loves. Mm -hmm. Like the flashback shows a very different man. Yeah, it does. It does. But like when we get to the point where he's um, um, torturing the police officer, I think it really shows the true side of him and it it sort of insinuates like something bad happened when he was in jail. Um, really? I See, think I so. Because like, I mean, that's like <laughs> to, 
to put duct, duct tape on his on his uh, mouth is like one thing. That's, that's kind of like mediocre criminal stuff, right? But yeah. then, like, to just whip out um, a blade and then yeah. like saw his ear off in such a casual—he didn't even hesitate on like doing yeah, it. But I don't think when I say he's like he's a different guy, I don't think like oh he's an innocent like naive guy, friendly guy. I definitely think he's still like a crazy guy who loves doing criminal work. Yeah. It's just like he's kind of like Michael, uh, not Michael, Mister White esque in that like Joe and Eddie are his guys, so he's cool to them. He's known them forever. Mm. He's going to treat them well. And then the flip side of him being like a psycho to the employees at the store, or being a psycho to the cop, um, I think they all weave pretty well for one person to be both those things. Yeah, yeah, and and I think like him going ape shit in the store which we never see right like it's, it's yeah. just all like exposition but i feel like his ape shit was probably like knowing seeing what i see and the way he explains it he's like they pressed the alarm i told him not to they would have been it alive was probably, like, very calm in the way he did it like you know yeah i reckon he's just like the same way that he's like that he treats um the police officer i think he was like yeah. it was the same kind of like calm treatment but um i think it just it, it sort of insinuates that something bad happened to him when he was in jail. It, and then it kind of makes me think about that scene where we first meet him, him and mm. um, Eddie, you know, when, they, Cause when you meet him, he's already been in he's jail. He's already right? been in jail. Like, oh, yeah. um, um, in that interview and he's talking yeah. with Eddie and they're having this like funny banter, like, like they've been friends. They have the little fight. It, yeah. The fight? little fake yeah. fight. And they've been like, but they've had, yeah, they've been friends for like 20 years. Yeah. They've thing. been friends for a long, long time. And then he, and then his friend Eddie makes that joke about like how he tried to like have sex with him in front of his, his dad, like on the floor. Oh, that's right. Yeah. You know, like, and then, and then he even like, he says the N word. He's like, maybe you've had some like, yeah. In like too much, too much in yeah, yeah, coming, yeah, out yeah, coming out of your mouth, and it's like <laughs> it's like it's some really crazy scripting. But um, yeah. like coming back to that scene with the police officer, it sort of makes me think maybe there was some truth in what Tarantino was trying to say in that scene. Like, why would he design a scene um, between those two characters where they talk, where they have that kind of like dialogue to each other? So maybe something did happen that he was so <clears throat> enraged about that. Like maybe it's getting a little bit too philosophical when you're looking into the character that deep. It's like there was mm. something traumatic that happened to him in jail <laughs> that he's willing to take oh. out on someone like a police officer because the police officer represents the very people that held him back, right? I do think he hates cops. Like he he does kind of say it in a way where he's like, you know, I don't know what information you have. I don't really care. I'm going to torture you because I find it amusing, mm. right? Like that's like. Yeah. <clears throat> he just enjoyed it. I don't know if something traumatic happened or if he was like, just kind of like this from the start. Mm. Um, but yeah. But it, it, like, it's just it, something like, maybe to, like interesting to look into and to think about, like considering that he made these jokes about his, him, maybe Eddie, his best friend knew something for that. Nobody else knows that we're, we're sort of just withdrawn to as an audience. Yeah. Mm. And it's kind of funny, right? Like it, it, people who like sort of insult Tarantino's filmmaking, I can kind of see it in the sense that you're watching for like what 15 minutes, um Mr. Blonde just torture and 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 kind of pre- prepare to kill this guy for no real reason. Mm-hmm. And like it could be argued that this scene was a little bit like a lot. It was a lot. <laughs> Right? It doesn't really progress the story very well. No, no. Um, it's really it's all there. about, like, just the character and how crazy he is, really. Yeah, and so it's just a scene to watch to make the audience squirm a bit. Yep. But in my response to that is, like, this is kind of, like, 
the action set piece of the film. Yeah. In a way, right? Yeah. It, it's where the stakes move from medium to very, very high. Mm. Because you know, as an audience, that Eddie loves Mr. Blonde. Mm-hmm. Yep. So when he gets killed, like, you know that, like, shit's going to get, like, it's kind of like, it's an untenable, unrecoverable situation at this yep. point. So, yeah. I, I felt like that scene, even though it's very gory, very long, doesn't progress the storyline that much. It actually does. Yep. Um, I want to read this bit. When Eddie, Pink, and White return, Orange tries to convince them that Blonde planned to kill them all and steal the diamonds for himself. Eddie impulsively kills Nash and accuses Orange of lying, since Blonde was loyal to his father. Um, Joe arrives with news that the police have killed Blue. He is about to execute Orange whom he suspects is the traitor behind the setup, but White intervenes and holds Joe at gunpoint, insisting that Orange is not a police officer. Eddie aims his gun at White, creating a Mexican standoff, all three fire, and and then the whole killing scene happens. Um, uh, This... uh, I was going to say, this scene actually reminded me of uh, a scene in Once Upon a Time in Mexico, um, which is directed by... Directed? Yeah, directed and written by Robert Rodriguez, but it was produced, and I think it was written by Tarantino. <laughs> yeah. Oh, so he used his old ideas again? Um, yeah, I think he was using some old ideas. Yeah, for sure. Because, like, um, you know that movie, uh, Once Upon a Time in Mexico? No. That's, a, that's the third to the Mariachi trilogy. You know what? I have only seen the first Our one. Mariachi. I no, okay. I, I, you mean no, Desperado? God, what am I thinking about? I was thinking about the Clint Eastwood ones. Oh. That's <laughs> like... Oh, that's good about the ugly. <laughs> the three of them. That's right? a Western There's, film, um, yeah. Well, well, I don't know. When you said Mexico, I assumed Western. Yeah. No, no, no. Al Mariachi was the first one. Desperado was the second one. And then Once Upon a Time, Mexico is the last one. It's the one that, oh. it's the films, well, I want to say it's the film that made um, Antonio Banderas famous, but I don't think it's what made him famous. Okay. I think it was just a movie that was he was part of. Um, and Zoe, oh, sorry, Zoe, um, uh, what's her name? Uh, Penelope Cruz, isn't it, as well? No, sorry, Summer Hayek, oh. not Penelope Cruz. <laughs> oh, sorry, it's somewhat recent-ish. Like, not recent, but it's like new It's like na- late 90s, 90s, yeah, late 90s, yeah, 2000s. Okay. Anyway, it kind of reminded me of that. But, like, what I wanted to ask you, because I still wasn't sure about this, and you might you might know because you've seen it like ten times. Yeah, Eddie gets shot by Mister Pink, right? Eddie, yeah, oh, no, no, not Mister Pink. No, no, no. I think Orange. I think White kills them both. White kills them both. Yeah. Really? Okay. That's, my view is that White is like good at this, whereas Eddie and Joe are not. Okay. Like, they're just, like, the bosses, right? So, White's able to bang, Because, like, Mr. Pink, right, he, he hides. Like, he ha- he also has his gun out, but he hides yeah. in this... He hides... Well, we see him come out of, like, the... Underneath the ramp, whatever. Yeah. The I, only reason why I think, like, he's the one that shot Eddie was because it's part of his duty to finish the job, and finishing the job meant that he needed to intervene at some point in this Mexican standoff in order for him to get out. Because he, he eventually takes the bag, which I'm assuming has the diamonds in it. Yeah. See, the way that I read it um, is 
he, you know, he just lets whatever happens happens. He then sees that there's no one alive. Mm. He grabs the bag and he runs. Like he, he seems op- opportunistic because, mm. like, he was willing to cut wide in yep. at the start, and he likes Eddie because he said, "I've known Eddie since we were kids, or I've known Joe since I was a kid." Oh yeah, yeah. So it, it kind of speaks to me that he wouldn't do that. He he doesn't seem like particularly greedy. Yep, yep. That's my view. At least. Yeah. Okay, fair enough. Yeah, so, so they have that, like, standoff. Um, the tension is really, really high. The adrenaline is back. Like, it's 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 a good way to sort of end off this, like, final part of the film. Um, I wasn't actually expecting Mr. White. I was quite, quite surprised by this because of what we learned about Mr. White so far. I, was, I thought he was willing to forgive him, even at the point of, like, imminent death. Oh, like forgiving, for, forgiving Mr. Orange. Mr. Orange, yeah. But then when Mr. Orange, oh, rev- point, yeah, just to be clear, listeners, well, um, Mr. Orange, once Mr. White has been shot, Mr. Orange admits that he's mm-hmm. a cop. Yeah, but so he's a cop. After all that, you know, like because he's he's doing everything in his power to defend that Mr. Orange is completely innocent and he is not the rat. And and remember, yeah. even up to this point, we still don't know who the rat is. Like according to everybody in the room, except for Mr. Orange, obviously. We don't know who the who the rat is, and we're we're about to finish the film. <laughs> no, 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 no. Um, we do because no, like, no, we, we we know. Yeah, yeah, we know who yeah, the rat is, no, but the characters don't know except for Joe. Like Joe's pretty much willing to die on that hill. Joe, but he doesn't, right? Like, no, like, because he... like, and this is the clever thing about the dialogue is that like, Mister White puts him on the spot. He's like, well, "What's your evidence?" And well, he, I don't think he says "What's your evidence," but he he tries to justify his like, reason. How do, how do you know? know? And what yeah. does he come up with? It was some kind of like he's like uh, he was the only guy who wasn't one hundred percent. Yeah, yeah, he was the only guy that I was one hundred percent clear that he he is going to be the rat. He's like, "That's your evidence. That's your evidence." <laughs> yeah, and he's like, you know. What, what did he say? Like, um, so you've got instinct. You don't need evidence. Yes, yeah, that's right. You don't. You got and instinct. He's right. Well, he's right, but 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 also like that's not. You, you can't. That doesn't hold up in the court of law or anything. Or doesn't even hold up, hold up with any scrutiny because you have nothing to stand yeah. on. Doesn't hold up under any scrutiny. One thing that I think we've kind of passed. Oh no, let's finish this thing off because I want to go back to the orange flashback. Okay. Okay. Um. Yeah. Do you want to do that now? Uh. No, well, well, I just wanted to like like hone in on that scene where like between um mr white and mr orange but we can come back to that we can go back let's let's uh go back to what you're talking yeah, about i just kind of I, I felt like the orange flashbacks was like this weird tonal shift and when i say weird i don't mean in a bad way like that's like once he says oh i'm a cop then you get a flashback of like him um being and, and like it's kind of you, you get a big sense of like he's very young, he's very brash, he's cocky, but he's still a little bit unsure, right? Like there's this part where he's in the apartment and he looks at his at the mirror and he's like, "You're not going to get hurt." They don't know they they believe anything because you're great. Mm-hmm. And then he walks in. right, and so it really makes sense of him being a really bad guy getting shot. <laughs> the, the okay, so while we're talking about Mister Orange, I, I want to talk about some of the things that I really like about his character that kind of, in my opinion, makes him the villain of the story. Oh, okay. Yeah. I mean, okay, sure. Like this movie doesn't really have antagonist or protagonist type thing in a conventional way. Cause again, it's like, it's fundamentally unconventional the way he tells the story. But I think if there's any villain in the story, I think it's Mr. Orange because he's, he, he's, he's playing it. He's playing a villain towards, himself as well i think he goes through like in a conflict i think he because remember uh when he's training to do whatever he's supposed to do 
um, to be a rat in this operation. Um, remember, there's like um, uh, I can't remember the name of the black guy. Maybe it's actually one of the actors here. Maybe it's like oh uh, yeah, or something. maybe uh, maybe that's Holdaway. Maybe that's Holdaway. Yeah, yeah, I think that's Randy Brooks. Yeah, Randy Brooks. Yeah. Um, he's he gives him like a line from a movie to say. Remember, so he so he can like. Uh, build the skill, oh, the whole story, yeah. Like, like the whole story. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you can build like the confidence to be able to act like uh, like an actor in a movie, which is a little bit of a meta piece of film, which is kind of cool. Um, yeah, I really enjoyed that part. But then, like he he gets so good at practicing these types of characters that he he really like digs into the character so much that he takes the character almost like as real as like a method actor would take like a character in their film. Right, like yeah. he really lives. He immerses himself so much in the role that he can't dis- distinguish between, like, doing the right thing and doing the wrong thing. Um, well, I think about the incident. Like, you know, he's he thinks he's doing something good for the greater society or whatever, right? Because he's a he's a yeah, he's, he's a cop. cop. He's a police officer, and he's going in to take down this operation that goes completely wrong. Not just for the operation itself, but also for him as a cop too, because he gets shot. Like, I think mm. I, he believes that he's he's doing the right thing. But he's so immersed in this character that he can't distinguish from right and wrong. Like, there's a scene where he gets into the car, sorry, where they um, um, stick up the lady in the car to steal the car, yeah. right? Like, he, he, he gets shot. Yeah, he's protecting himself. But then he just, like, completely takes her out. <laughs> shoot <doing laughs> shoots her in the chest. Because he's been shot. Yeah, he's been, I get he's that. Shot. Yeah, but, like, police officers, like, oh, yeah, I guess police officers would do that. But, like... It's they would be doing it without getting shot first. <laughs> Whoa. Wow. Shots fired. Haha, <laughs> get it? Shots fired. Them. Shots fired. Um, but like I feel like he's someone that his he's almost got this like um clinical diagnosis to him now, like uh narcissism whatever or like disorder. Like pers- narcissistic personality disorder. I oh, feel really? like he's he's yeah. he's battling with that because he doesn't really know the differences anymore but the moment he gets shot and he's like on his deathbed practically um he starts to realize that he's done the wrong thing or like he's he's put himself in such a bad position where he can't get out of it and he eventually has to tell the truth and that truth doesn't actually get revealed until the very last frame of the film because the thing that i i took that in a very different way like i feel you know he's a cocky guy who doesn't know what he's getting himself into totally agree with Mm. that um he thinks he's gonna be all fine he gets shot, starts to realize it's not going to be fine, freaks out like crazy for a lot of the film. Um, and then, like, you know, he sort of has fits of being, like, in control and out of control, right? Like, when he's talking to the other cop, he's very much in control. He's like, hey, I'm a cop. And the guy's like, yeah, I've met you before. And he's like, yeah, you know, mm-hmm. we're going to wait because we can't do anything until Joe gets here. I'm going to stick to the mission. And then I feel like when he's, like, he actually has a... Um, relationship with Mr. White, like I guess it, it, you you could be forgiven for thinking that like Mr. White sees him as like a, a, a son like figure, and it's like one way traffic because um Mr. Orange is a cop, and so you might think, oh yeah, he's just like um playing a role. But then at the end of the film, when Mr. Orange tells White like, hey, I'm actually a cop, it makes me think, oh, it was like a two way traffic uh relationship between those two and doesn't work out well for him but like i i don't know i never felt i never got the feeling that he was like narcissistic i felt like he was a person who yeah wanted to survive 
and was thought he was doing a job that he was ready for, but actually wasn't. Yeah, well, it's just because, like, um, of all the scenes, all the flashback scenes that we see of him, like, practicing the character with um, Randy Brooks, uh, yeah. Holdaway or whatever his name is. Um, yeah. He's doing his best. It's almost like a rehearse, like a rehearsal for him to prepare really for this character that he's going to get himself into. And I think he gets so deep into it that he starts to build this cocky, like, confidence that ends up, like, putting him in the worst position possible, like, before even yeah. getting halfway through whatever the mission was. <laughs> Like he, yeah, he's not really cocky at all. Uh, he's cocky in the in the flashback, but you don't see him cocky when he's got the the bullet in his chest, right? Or the bullet in his. No, no. Yeah, kind of, I found a little bit weird, and uh, I don't even know if I want to bring this up. But Joe shoots um, Orange again, and Orange is still alive in order to talk to White. Like he's dying Are you talking about the suspicious disbelief here? <laughs> yeah, I don't want to bring it up. I don't it's think it's something that actually crossed my mind too. Like when I was watching this, I was like, they justify it through dialogue you know like mr white says oh you got shot in the whatever like it was like a wound in the something or rather and it takes you like two days to die or something do you remember that yeah but he clearly is lying because when he tells pinky like he's not gonna last a night <laughs> like yeah no but then and then joe shoots him again and he's still alive enough to say um Oh, Larry, I'm a, oh, yeah. you know, I'm a cop. Ah, you know, at that point, like he's he's, he's yeah. like so numb, it's he's so numb, he can't feel it. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So, so at that scene, you know, where that the they're both together, um, he's pretty much on his last breath, Mister Orange, and Mister White's like holding him, um, also in a similar similar way that he was holding him uh, when they first got yeah at the start, which yeah. was um quite uh, it's quite a nice like tie up um uh when he's holding him that close like the last lines that he's that mr orange says to mr white is that i'm the cop i've or something along that effect yeah, yeah, I'm, the cop. yeah I'm a cop pretty much what he says, I think, yeah. i'm the cop and then um mr white takes his time to then put the gun towards his draw and um the implication is that he shoots him he does shoot him. Right? Like we yeah. hear the gunshot. We don't see it. We hear the cop say, "Put the weapon down. Put the weapon down." Right. We see Mister White go down. We don't know if he shoots him and then gets shot. Oh, because because we, we hear yeah, we hear a gunshot, but we're not sure if it's him getting shot or if it's him shooting Mister Orange. Yeah, for, right. like for sure he gets shot, right? But we don't know if he gets his shot off first. Yep. Um, I True. choose to believe that he did. Yeah, yeah. Maybe he didn't get the shot off first because if he got shot off first, I think he just falls backwards. I'd assume. <laughs> yeah. Um. Like he falls. He falls. Yeah. Like, like bang, bang. Well, which is which is also besides the point. The the point is that um, Tarantino is trying to tell us that there is there is an intent and an effect that's supposed to go on here, which is uh, Mr. White eventually wants to kill him. For betraying him, yeah, which which says a lot about his loyalty, to, not his loyalty, but it says a lot about like his convictions. He's willing to act on his convictions, right? Yeah. And he's willing to take control. Um, but then it also like uh, feeds into what we know about the character, which is he has moral dilemma. Like he doesn't. It's not like he's unsure on what to do. He's very sure in the decisions that he's making, but he's making a lot of contradictory decisions in terms of his moral compass. Um, and that's very, very consistent throughout the film. Yeah. I feel like Mr. White, like, he makes the best choices he can. And I feel like at the end, like, I mean, this is a 
this is like kind of a cheat because I had subtitles turned on. So when he's <laughs> so um, you got it revealed like orange. before it actually happened with the subtitles. <laughs> no, it's not about that. He just says that he just says Mr. White is wailing, uh, and I'm like, oh, he's crying, and I'm like, oh, okay, I wasn't aware of that. And it's like it, the way that I read, he's not. I think he's like kind of like mm, like they're moaning in pain, yeah. right? But like the idea that he shot one of his best friends in order to protect a guy who he was actually wrong about, um, you know, I can I can see that being something that would cause him to kind of break in a way. Yeah. Yeah. Oh dear. Yeah. Pretty realistic. But at the same time, I was still quite surprised. Like I thought that he'd 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 built so much love and care for his friend, Mister Orange, that and he betrayed him. He betrayed him. The most, yeah. But... Oh, I don't know. I don't know. Like, I wouldn't it's, forgive um... that. I'm not shooting people. I wouldn't forgive that. <laughs> that's a that's a difficult thing. Like it's 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 that's probably why it's a moral dilemma, right? Like it's a difficult decision. Mm. It's you're stuck between a rock and a hard place. What kind of like? Nah, I'm definitely shooting. That's why I like to believe that he shot him in <laughs> yeah. the head. His instinct was like, "I'm going to shoot this guy" because he just completely yeah. betrayed me. And now everyone's dead. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but it's kind of crazy. I feel like um, this movie does. Like, you know, we were talking about like axed for like axe for a mm-hmm. while. I do feel like if you think about this from like a traditional sense, um, seeing the cop is like the end of the first act, mm-hmm. and then um, like having Mr. Blonde get killed would be, like, the end of the second one. Mm. And then, like, the Mexican standoff is, like, the the peak of the third act. Yeah. 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 And, like, what I what I love about what this movie does is that it manages to keep momentum and adrenaline all throughout a heavy, heavy dialogue character. Yeah. So, and and the way he does that is the non-linear storytelling, right? Like he interjects. It's like it's like an intersection between um, telling us what's happening in the present while intersecting uh, things like the past, um, how they got into the job, the heist that we yeah. never see. We see bits and pieces of like after the heist and not really before the heist. You know, like anything. You don't see anything. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you don't see anything before. We don't see anything before. Like anything to do with the heist is always after the fact. Like, you know, for example, mm-hmm. right in the beginning, we see Mr. Pink running away from the police officers. That's like, right. That was yeah. one of the first parts that we see after the heist. And then after after that, it was the moment where Mr. White and Mr. Pink, oh, sorry, Mr. White and Mr. Orange go to the car, um, to yeah. get into the car. And then he turns around and then just guns down the police officers. And Mr. Brown is like getting murdered. Mr. Brown's getting murdered. Like, yeah. Um, all these incidences are a way to kind of drive excitement, tension, and adrenaline throughout the script. And I thought it was such a brilliant way of doing that. I agree with that in some respects. Like, the nonlinear definitely helps. But I feel like the actual plot is also like, has a lot of like peaks and, and, and valleys. Like, you've got the. The conversation at the start, it's somewhat slow. You're getting a lot of information. You see Blonde. And, like, you know, that really peaks up, like, the amount of tension in that scene. Then, like, you see the cop. It goes down a bit because, like, they're all friends again when they see the cop the first time. And then you see the torture scene. And then he kills Mr. Blonde, Orange does. And then he starts talking to the cop. And they're just having this little quiet moment of chat. And that's, like, again, down again. And then, boom, Eddie comes back. And, like, the tension is, like, through the roof. Like, there is a lot of, like, ebb and flow to even just the warehouse scenes, in my Mm. opinion. Yeah. Yeah, no, I would agree. I'd agree with all that. Um, um, What else do you want to to cover in this? We've covered pretty much most of it, right? Like, all the really good things, all the things that I didn't quite appreciate. I like that. (laughs) method by the way like not like reading it like plot for plot just talking about like 
bits that we lacked yep. Yep. in a somewhat sequential order. Which kind of works out for a lot of the time because we have a lot to say about the film in general, <laughs> let alone getting into the recap. <laughs> yeah, the recap takes time. You know, we've got to read out these paragraphs that someone else wrote. Like, it's a time-consuming <laughs> thing, man. We don't have time to give. Well, let us know what you think, listener. Do you want us to, like, read the plot, like how we have been doing for the last, like, I don't know, 60 episodes? <laughs> yeah. Or do we want to do it this new oh, way? this new way, which, which is, is, yeah, like, we can use the, the plot as sort of bullet points of, like, going through certain places. But, like, I, I, I do like the recap because the recap kind of, it jogs our memory and it also just allows us to rethink our opinions on certain parts of the film. I like having it written here, but I don't think we need to say it, is, is my mm-hmm. view right now, having done both. Well, styles. you know, thank you for your input. I want you to put that in the suggestion box. Thank you. And uh, do you have one? No. <laughs> <laughs> and I almost like spilled my beer. You should have said, yeah, it's, it's like it's the bin or something. That would have been a cool line. Mm, I don't know if I can pull that one off. I'm not, I'm not a comedian like that. Oh, so all right. So okay, what like this is this is a good yeah. way to conclude our episode. Um, what would we give it out of ten? Do you want me to go first, or are you go first? Yeah, you go first, man. Okay, my quick summary for this is like I like the movie more so now <laughs> that we've spoken about it because I think like learning like these characters were always so interesting to me when I was watching the film. Um, yeah. All throughout it, I was like, man, like this is there's so much dialogue, but it's 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 interesting, and I'm so. I'm so like invested in what they're talking about. Why am I so invested in what they're talking about? You know, and and you you get the development of the characters all the way all throughout the film, which is great. And like I said before, I, I think at the beginning of the podcast, there's three main characters that I think are the most important: Mr. White, Mr. Orange, and Mr. Blonde, <clears throat> because they represent three parts of the film. Well, three parts of the, I'd say like they represent the archetypes of the film. I don't. Yeah, right. Okay. Like um, the film is trying to portray sympathy. Like it's trying to portray like humans at their best and at their worst in in some ways. Um, and and I think these three characters really do, do a good job at um, representing that. Um, uh, like, yeah, there's just I, I feel like this is a movie I could go back and watch like in five years time and I'm going to appreciate it even more. Like, I think it's going to grow like really, really well. And it's going to age really well because this is a movie that came out in 1992, right? Like, so and it's still, and it's still relevant, man. Like really, really good scripting and, and, and really good characters. So for that, also with the lowlights that I won't mention again, cause I'll probably just go on and on about those lowlights. You can <laughs> rewind back to the beginning of the podcast of what those little lights are. So for that, I'm probably going to give this movie a 8.5 out of 10. Ah, damn. Yeah. All right. My last points is going to be a lot easier, I think. I love this film. Um, 10 out of 10. I <laughs> am going to end up there, to be honest. Wow! You know what? Yeah. <laughs> I really, okay, I'll explain why. Okay, yeah. this, is, this is a very personal opinion. Right. One, if you know me at all by now, I'm a dialogue guy. I love dialogue. I love when, like, this character studies stuff where it's just, like, people responding to things. I really enjoy those types of movies more than, like, big action set-piece films. So this is just one that's right up my alley. I feel like there's an element of, like, you know, reviewing a film as, like, purely, like, what is the end result? Like, what is the um, piece of art that's created at the end? And then there's an element of a film review where you're kind of thinking about like, okay, look, like this is 
a certain type of movie, but you know, they spend the entire time in a warehouse. Now you could argue that like, that's a choice of the film. So why are we giving them credit for making a choice that's hard and then pulling it off? But no, I want to give them credit. Like they did something that's kind of hard and they pulled that off. Like having a film where people are responding to an off screen action sequence and it's happening in one room and it's as engaging as it is. I think that warrants like some level of credit. Um, and the fact that, like, I think, I think this movie created a genre of films where, like, you know, you've got, like, wisecracking hitman talking about whatever. And, like, it's kind of a bit sad that it's so overplayed, but this movie created mm. that. And I do like that genre of film. Yeah. I like talking about random stuff. I like sort of how comedy is seeped into action. And so I got to give, again, credit for what this movie has done. So I want to give it a 10. You're going to give it a 10? Wow. I uh, Tony's first 10 on the podcast. <laughs> no. I think it's your first 10 on the podcast, yeah. All right, you know what? Happy with it. <laughs> you know what? I'm going to change it. <laughs> 9.9. No, no, 10. I love this movie. It's great. Nothing's stopping great. this. Reservoir Dog. Changed my life. 10 out of 10. Awesome. So this is... So this time around, it was better. Like, would you say it's better? No, it was worse. It was worse. Still 10 out of 10. That's interesting. <laughs> you're a weirdo. <laughs> uh, you're, you're a weirdo. No, but great, great. I mean, this is, I'm pretty sure, well, I, I'm not 100% sure, but I'm like 99% sure that this is your first 10 on podcast. Have you given, you've given 10s before, have you? Yeah, I've given 10s. I've given 10s for, I can't remember. Bobby. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I can't remember the last ten I gave. Might have been, might have been Top Gun Maverick. I gave that a ten out of ten. Oh dear, yeah, I really love that. Yes, it is better than that. <laughs> <laughs> I really love that movie. I think it was great. I think I gave that a ten as well. Actually, you g- I don't, I don't bad. think you gave it a ten. I think you gave it a high score, but I don't think it was a ten. Oh really? Let me see. Yeah. How do I, how do I go back? Um, I can't even. It should be. It should I've still be in the notes, like in. Go back, back, back. Um, but yeah, um, you shouldn't do this on the, with the <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so that's what we have to say about Reservoir Dogs. Again, this is the first movie of the uh, I was gonna say the logical series. This is the first movie of the legacy series for Taran- Quentin Tarantino. I gave Maverick, oh, gave it, oh, no way, okay, yeah, wow, there you go. I am wrong. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I kind of wish I gave this one first, but you know what? This movie came out. First, it did come out first, and yeah. I thought it was a ten before I thought Maverick yeah. was a ten. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. Wait, did so? Wait, you always thought it was a ten, even before this. Maverick? No, no, no. Reservoir Dogs. Oh, for sure. Like I thought I was going to give it a ten, like, like when you first saw it. As soon as you mentioned. Oh, okay, okay, okay. <laughs> You're like, let's do Reservoir Dogs. I'm like, I know what I'm giving it. <laughs> Watch it again. And I thought it was worse. Yeah. And I'm like, still worth it. Yeah. Yep. It's not done so much for film, in my opinion. Yeah. And like, yeah. I don't, I don't want to give it like legacy points like that. And so when I say it, it kind of makes me not want to say it because I, I, I don't want to say, oh, like, you know, for example, the Beatles, mm-hmm. right? I don't really like the Beatles that much, but they've done a lot for music. So you want to sort of give them high marks. And I generally am the person who doesn't do that. You see, I, but this film, I can't say things like that. Sorry. 
I can't say that Beatles have done things for music because I have no idea like what I've, what they've done for music. <laughs> well, I, I think rock and roll like wasn't really a thing until they. But came is it still? Right? I mean, I don't know. Is rock and roll still a thing now though? I mean, it was a thing for like thirty years, right? Is that? But is that doing something for music? I don't know. I mean, creating a genre that turned into I oh, think. Oh, you're saying the they created genre. rock and roll? I, f- I mean, I don't know. I, f- I feel like that's what people claim. <laughs> I don't know. I have no idea. I don't know. I mean, I'm not a fan of them. I, so I, I, do, I, really I just have this like kind of like uh, uh, cynicism towards like the whole Beach Boys and Beatles thing. It's like it, it just annoys yeah. me. Like when I hear about it. Well, <laughs> yeah, when I listen to the Beatles, I'm always like, oh, I don't know if I really like this. And then I always want to try and give them points because of like the fact that they like they did it first. Yeah. Um, and I'm trying to catch myself in this particular review because, like, while Reservoir Dogs did a lot of things first, it's also very, very good despite mm-hmm. that. Like, that conversation about um, Madonna and tipping, mm-hmm. you might think, well, that's like the, you know, you want to give them points because they were the first ones to do, like, kind of inane conversations in film. But it's also still probably stands up as one of the best. Yeah. Probably still, like, the best view of it. So it's not like the Beatles where they did it first and it kind of sucks mm-hmm. compared to what's there now. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> but, but I guess more to your point is like something should be good because it's good in and of itself, not because it's what the, it was the first or the or like the last or whatever, you know, or the best at doing it. Like, like especially for for a medium like film, if you're good at doing something, you should be credited for doing that thing, and not because like no one else is doing it. That's the thing, though, right? Like, if you look at a movie from like 1960, and I'm sure you probably have a stronger opinion on this than I do. Like, there are probably some films that did some really innovative things, which now look crap. Mm. But you want to give them credit for it because it's technology at the time or, you know, all that stuff at the time. Yeah. Like, this was a very, very, like, instrumental thing to film in general. Yeah. It looks like shit now. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I guess that kind of, like, falls under the umbrella of, like, acknowledging, like, certain innovations maybe that happened during the, in the medium. Would you give it a high score based on the innovation? No, no. No, I, I would give. Like, I would always like my my criticisms, my uh, ratings that I give for films is always based on the film itself and nothing to do with whether it was like the first or it's created. It's getting so merit purely based on like enjoyment. Purely based like, on yeah, purely based on yeah, the, okay, on the craft that's itself. View that I'm trying to take with a lot of these things. But I, I think it's like the. I think it's the most objective way you can criticize films. Yeah. Because there's, it's it's like giving merit for, like, no reason. <laughs> then we're walking around like Citizen Kane, 3 out of 10. Yeah. Uh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny. Like, so, someone mentioned to me that we should review and recap Citizen Kane. <laughs> yeah. I haven't even really seen I don't, I don't, it. Right, oh, like, I, I, actually, hmm. Would, would I Tony, would Tony like i think you would really appreciate things in it i don't think you'll because because you're a guy that really values dialogue and film the movie is like heavy exposition dialogue but i don't think it's the kind of dialogue that you would appreciate i don't know no like i don't really like old timey talk i don't think it's that old timey right but it's like Pretty much old. more stilted <laughs> than it's like almost 100 years old <laughs> oh, oh yeah, yeah it's definitely gonna be old timey like you know when you play like um actually i don't want to get into this but like I like modern dialogue. I like modern mannerisms and, and, and people talking about, like, dumb stuff. It's right. the kind of way we talk, yeah. right? So when you go to a Citizen Kane, and I'm thinking it's about a rich guy, so he's going to be like, oh, beseech oneself. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to hate 
<laughs> I would love to to like see you watch it. Actually, I'd be so interested to see because I, I really don't like the movie. I, I'm I, I sit in that sort of um, hardcore film nerdy camp where I don't like Citizen Kane. Is yeah, I've seen like old films before, like from the nineteen sixties. Um, mm. Generally, hate them all. Like, just generally. Oh, hate them all. have you seen Singing in the Rain? Like a Ah, uh, no, but I reckon I wouldn't love it. Yeah, actually, I don't think you'll like it, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, like, I don't know. There's like this, like, like a Casablanca. Actually, actually here, here's a challenge for you. Here's a challenge for you. All right. I think you should tr- you should watch, uh, try and watch Rope from Alfred Hitchcock. Rope. Yep. So not Birds or Psycho. Mm. I th- I think Birds is overrated. Like people people think that Birds is like his best film. I don't think it is. I think Rope's better. Is it horror? Like they're all horrors, right? Because I don't like they're thrillers. Horror. He was the he was he's known as like the uh, pioneer of thriller genre. Well, that's the reason why I'm questioning this because you know I don't particularly care. No, no. They- <laughs> <laughs> with with things like ro- like the, a movie like Rope, it's definitely not horror themed at all. It's a very clever film. And the whole film is done in one shot. It was the, he was the first guy to do the whole one shot thing for a film. Damn, yeah. okay. Like Birdman. Yeah, it's interesting. It's very, very interesting. Cool. I will endeavor to check All right. Um, well, we're going to bring this to an end. Thanks, listener, for chiming in and listening to us talk about Quentin Tarantino's first film debut in Hollywood, Reservoir Dogs. Let us know what you think. Did you think it was 8.5 8. 5 out of 10? Or do you think I'm out of my mind and it should have been way more, like a Tony score, 10. a 10 out of 10? Or do you think we're both out of our minds and you think it should be like a 2.10 out of 11. 10? <laughs> <laughs> uh, let us know what you think in the comments. We're going to be posting this up very, very soon. Um, um, this is also like a hu- uh, special little of announcement that I want to throw in here as well. Um, we just started a YouTube channel, so make sure you check the YouTube channel link. It'll be in the show notes. Um, moving forward from today, um, there's like one subscriber on there at the moment, <laughs> but it's yeah, it's me. <laughs> but it's 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 really difficult to kind of. I actually like this is new territory for me. I, I don't know how to like run a YouTube channel. I don't know how to get subscribers. I don't know how to get views. It's actually really hard Damn. to get like into the search results. Like I, as soon as I launched the channel, I went to type in logical podcast it didn't even come up you should uh, check with Lockie. he's 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 done a good job with uh football guys football guys oh yeah wow has he oh yeah he's, he, there's one video of us playing soccer mm. that's got i think like two thousand views oh wow that's, that's know, right? like 1998 more views than my one of <laughs> my videos that i just uploaded <laughs> Did you watch it twice? <laughs> no, it wasn't me. Like, okay, that's something that I would admit. That was that wasn't me. Um, I have no idea who watched that, but it's interesting. I, I, I have no idea how the search results or the search engine works on YouTube. Like, it's kind of crazy that I would type logical podcast in verbatim. It doesn't even come up. Yeah, it's so really Filthy Futsal fourteen has one point nine thousand views. Wow. It's crazy. Um, but yeah, um, be sure to keep following us, keep liking our content. Um, now you can subscribe to our YouTube channel. It'll be in the show notes. Um, and you can find um, myself and... Oh, shit. Let me actually... Can I talk about one more thing? Sorry. <laughs> Before, we on. Before we end, Jimmy. Before episode 6 is 18,000 views. What's that? Episode 6 is 18,000 views. Episode 6 of what? Of the Filthy Futsal. Wow. I think you're in this, by the way. I think I think it was back when you were playing. Oh, that makes sense why there's so many views in. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. Look at your skills. <laughs> 
Funnily enough, I think it's the episode that I wasn't playing, so. <laughs> cool. Thanks. I don't everybody. have a button thing. Oh, wait, maybe I do. I'm sorry. You were, you were, oh no, yeah, you, so you're doing sign-offs. Yeah, sorry. I was just yeah. doing sign-offs. That was the end. I ruined the exit to our um, podcast. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, everybody. Um, we'll catch you again on the next review for Legacy Series. Quentin Tarantino is movie number two, Pulp Fiction. Oh, starting with all the bangers. Starting with all the bangers, Pulp Fiction. Um, and again, that is a movie that I haven't seen since, since I saw it when I was like, I don't know, 17, 18 years old. <laughs> yeah, meaning that this is the one I've seen once, never again. Enjoyed it a lot the first time. Um, but, you know, who knows? It's not a straight 10 for me, that's for sure. Oh, yeah. There we go. All right, man. Um, we'll catch you again. And thank you, listener. We will see you in the next episode. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye.